Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is general discussion about digital production. Second hour is usually something we want to spend a little more time on. And, you know, today is the audio day. So one of the things I want to you know, outline for folks is, is that, you know, each, each day has different subjects and uh, you should come in on those days to talk about those things. Uh, today we have Michael Santucci. Uh, he's a sensophonics hearing, uh, for hearing about sensophonics hearing conservation. So Dr. Santucci uh, is going to discuss his company products when it comes to uh, protecting hearing and enhancing listening. So it's going to be a great uh, second hour. Let's go ahead and jump into the questions, Bill. What do we have? Our first one comes from Laura Thompson this morning in Beaumont, Texas. And Laura says, DP Review is being shut down by Amazon. Is this site still as relevant as it was 15 years ago? What else is out there like it? It uh, is the fact that they are not going to keep it up, even an archive, even as an archive, a problem. Go ahead, Jeffrey. So Amazon's going through a big set of layoffs. They laid off yesterday, they or the day before, they laid off 9,000 people. And we're not talking, you know, uh, warehouse-type people. We're talking AWS. We're talking Twitch. And a lot of things got shuttered. A couple weeks ago, they shuttered their their, their Go shops, which were those uh, fresh uh, stores. And so they're they're getting ready for some sort of thing. I'm really surprised that DP Review hasn't been... Uh, it isn't trying to be sold out to somebody else or somebody's trying to buy it because that's that's really depressing that the, that this uh, that this website's going to go down. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Uh, I, I I was I was bummed. Well, I saw the news this morning. And I was like, "What? They're closing DP Review?" And then I tried to remember the last time I really spent any time in DP Review and realized, well, maybe that's why they're closing down <laughs> because I haven't. And, and it's not because they weren't detailed enough. It was that they were so detailed. I was like, "Oh, I got to dig through like four pages of things and try to find it." And there's only a handful of things that I'm really specifically interested in. I do think it's a it's a loss for people who are really geeks about cameras. Um, I think that it's so I think that that that's hard um, because they I've just never seen anything as detailed as they did. It was too detailed for me. Um, and I think that's probably part of their problem. Go ahead, Bill. Yeah, it, it, from the still camera and the DSLR revolution, these articles were amazing. Those of you who didn't know, you know, they'd write 15, 20,000 words about the latest Canon DSLR coming out, including tons of really specific technical details. They would test lenses against uh, each other and uh, hugely in depth. And I think that's it. You really had, it's kind of like some of those old long text magazines like Harper's. If you were really dedicated to reading it, you could sit down and start an article and, you know, 20 minutes later, you'd still be reading. And I just don't think that's how people consume information as much anymore. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, and and I was, we were talking before the show. We were like, "When's the last time you read an article?" And we, some of us said, "You know, last year, or whatever." When's the last time you finished one? And and we we all came to we've never no one's ever finished one <laughs> like this. But but there, I will say that there are sections that you go to. You go, oh, I'm going to go to the sensor section, or I'm going to go to this section. So that was kind of cool that had it there. I do think that it's a it, it is a changing of the times for that to disappear. Um, and it's not just uh, Amazon. A lot of people are are laying folks off right now. So it's a, it's a hard time for across a lot of companies. So um, I think that everyone's preparing for something, you know, that's what it appears. That's what it feels like. <laughs> so uh, next question. Steve, you're off in Madison, Wisconsin's up next. And it says, I'd like to set up a one-to-one, -one, no overhead, automatic, permanent audio video link between two offices. Think of permanent after hours with no reset and only two participants. How would you tackle this? You know, we did this in, um, 
I think that the big thing is, is that we didn't really think about, it. I think if it's a recurring, it's the fact that we want to keep it on all the time, that it, that it needs to be reset. I think that if you have it there and you just let it do its thing overnight, I think if it's a recurring room, it should, or a personal room, it should just stay opened all the time. And I believe that there is a recurring room that's based, I was doing searches and I couldn't find a solid answer. And I, and I wasn't totally certain, uh, you know, cause we just haven't set one up that way. I know with, with hangouts, uh, we used to, we used to have exactly what you're talking about between our DC office and our um, in our uh, San Francisco office, or and and it was just a room you always jumped into every morning, and everyone it was always there. It was it was uh, persistent, and we didn't think about it at all. And it was always you know it was just always open, but we didn't use it 24 seven. Go ahead, Chris. Yeah, the persistent thing is the is the key, I guess. But in almost the same way, you can set up a a meeting so that. Anybody who logs into it will activate and open the meeting. So yeah. if you just want a place to meet, uh, you know, that's what we do with the with the Rocket Group. There's a meeting available 24-7. Yeah, and I think that uh, I'll take a look. I mean, I, I get what you're saying, though. You just want a window open. I think two Zoom rooms would theoretically do that. I mean, I think that if you joined a Zoom room, I think it, it would stay persistent because I think that's kind of what they're designed for. I know we're kind of we're not answering your question very well. Uh, I I did we did do some research <laughs> last night this morning and I couldn't I couldn't find a solid answer for that but it seems like something we should research and it's really useful I get what you're trying to do is is that you don't want to you want to leave it open and just be able to walk in and there's just always a window that is the other side and I and I I guess I I I think that a personal room would do that if you created an account and set up its personal room I feel like that would that would work so um, but we'll we'll actually do some more research let's. We'll make that a challenge for us is to op- figure out how to open up a room. Um, so ask that question in a week and uh, we'll we'll come back to you and say we did it, we did it, <laughs> or we didn't do it, or it died. Uh, so we'll work on this. Go ahead, Jeffrey. One thing I'm going to ask for Steve to think about is how these offices are connected. Do they have a shared connection? Uh, are you using something like a... Uh, a dual WAN, uh, MLPS type uh, situation uh, connecting back and forth because then we can talk about direct IP type options and maybe Cisco or, or anything like that or a security system would work. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that, I think I, I would still do it in Zoom. I probably wouldn't find another way to do that, but but I, I do think that um, I don't know exactly the best way to do that. We'll, we'll do some research. Ask this question again in a week, and we'll have a better answer. <laughs> and you did answer it last, last night, so I apologize. We don't have a better answer today. Um, but we just I couldn't find it this morning. Um, next question. Lucas Herzog in Mainz, Germany is up next. Dolby just released a new version of the Atmos renderer that replaces the Atmos production and mastering suite. He's got the link there, and he says, thoughts? Are you excited about the new features? You know, I, I read this and kind of dug through it, and and there are some features there that are that that look um, that look interesting. Some new ones. Uh, it looks like it it basically is merging two of their 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 feature sets, which I think is really useful. Um, I think that what we do need to do is bring somebody on from Dolby to talk about it. Um, so I'm going to reach out to some folks that I know there and see if we can't bring somebody on to kind of walk us through the whole process. Go ahead, Jason. Um, Alex, I just have a supplemental question to that. Um, is there a substantial benefit to getting the Dolby, Dolby Atmos renderer um, over using something like Logic, which can render out directly to, yeah, to Atmos? Are, I think there's definitely more features in the in the uh, in the Dolby version, so you, you, there are definitely advantages to it. Um, I think that the Logic is a great place to start, but if you really want more complete 
control over that. You're going to want to get the, the get the standalone. So, um, so I think that there there's absolutely advantages, um, and and I think with this upgrade, there's there's probably more. Um, but again, I I haven't uh, I haven't been. I have to admit that I I kind of burrowed into the logic version <laughs> because it was just like, well, it's easy. I can just open it up. Um, but uh, but I think that uh, we we'll, we'll 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 bring somebody on from Dolby. I I can get somebody on to to talk to talk talk to us about it. So stay tuned. Next question. Next question comes from Jeff Cohen in Miami Beach. What in-ear monitors are you wearing now, and how would you characterize the sound? Neutral, boosted highs, boosted low end, and so forth. Go ahead, Courtney. Uh, I've been using one of the uh, Mr. Cheap, uh, these HYS uh, in-ear monitors, They're just for, uh, you know, the police and uh, everyone uses, Secret Service uses something like this. But you can get them fairly cheap. I think these, uh, I got two for 20 bucks, so... Ten bucks a piece on Amazon HYS, and they seem to work fine. I, I like. I've had several of them. They're exactly the same design, but the drivers didn't give me full uh, response. And this one has a good low end response to it, uh, and it sounds pretty smooth. And I'm pretty happy with it. And good, I've good. only gone through one. I've gone through one which uh, the cable failed here, so that's their only weakness that I found about it. Good, Bill. Yeah, I use a little security in-ear monitor, and uh, in terms of the kind of sound, it's very much uh, headed towards speech. It is not good for music. I wouldn't use it for that. Although it, an interesting phenomenon happened. I used to do the morning mic checks here by putting my headphones on just so I make sure I had a full sound thing. I have learned, one of the things about how your brain and your ears adapt to hearing I can hear more of the low end than I originally thought I could because I've just gotten accustomed to these. And I find that true of every listening solution I have. If I have to use somebody else's headphones and not the 7506s that I'm really used to, it takes me about a week of using something else to get kind of reoriented. And then I start to be able to hear most of the stuff I was able to hear before. I just find that interesting. It's that brain hearing link that really makes things work. But I, So I just use a security headphone and you know, it's only mono, it's only low volume, it's clear enough for me to hear what everybody on the panel is saying, and that's my goal here, not listening to uh, symphonic music. Go ahead, Jason. Yeah, what Bill is, is showing you is something that is the result of a lot of critical listening and then figuring out, you know, wh where the holes are. Um, I Let's see, these are the $150 Shure inner monitors connected to a, a wireless body pack. Um, and I tend to switch between those, and um, these are the more expensive uh, Shure 8, SE846s, I think. Um, and I, I would say the difference between the two um, for office hours is nothing, like absolutely nothing. For, for like, you know, for on stage, critical listening, that kind of thing, absolutely. Um, you know, the, the $900 earbuds are definitely going to be a little bit better. Yeah, I, uh, as many people know, I use the these. Linsole, uh, the KZZS 10 Pros, I think, are, are what they're called here. Um, and uh, these are, they're about 50 bucks. Um, those are the ones I, I, they're a lot more present than, they're not accurate. Um, they're not, they're more present than, than, other, than, you know, so, but what I will say is when, as anyone who was here, when I put them first on, the clarity between what I was hearing with them and what I was hearing with basically security earphones was so distracting that I had I couldn't finish. You spent a whole episode going. I, like, I had to. Whoa. I had. To, I had to switch it back because I was like, "Oh my!" And what? But what it did is it made me much better. Uh, <laughs> it made my sound better, and I actually think it made the whole the whole 
shows sound better for me to have these earphones on because I picked at everybody, you know, suddenly because I could suddenly all the stuff I couldn't hear in the security one, I could hear, I could hear with the Linsoles. And so I was picking at everybody with weird fans and things that I wasn't hearing at all before. And, um, and so I, and I definitely changed the way I managed my own space, um, with things that were causing, you know, where I was using and how high my noise assist was and everything else was all changed because of the, the, the headsets. So I would say they're pretty good. They're 50 bucks. They're more, they're, they're, again, they're, they're leaning towards presence. Um, they, they definitely pick up high and lows. They, uh, the more expensive ones that Linsole makes are very uncomfortable to, for me. Um, so it's the $50 ones are the ones I use. The $150 ones or $130 ones are, I, I keep them in my bag just as a backup. But um, I don't put them in because if I put them in for more than an hour or two, my ears ache. <laughs> you know, from, you know, and so, so I, uh, so I, uh, so they're, I, I wouldn't go more, exp- I, I was like, well, if these are this good, what happens if I spend more money? And it turns out they got worse. Uh, go ahead, Jeff. And I asked because I actually I thought they look different. I don't know if uh, you change the if the outside color or maybe it's just me. I, I have they, I have like ten pairs of them, so I have them. They're burrowed, they're burrowed into all my kits, and so I may have switched the the color, but they, they've been either they, they've generally been black. Um, right. but, yeah. and, and I remember you said that you, that you didn't like the more expensive ones. Yeah. And, and I'm curious. I asked the question not just for use on a panel like this, but but thinking about the idea of wearing something like that for recording voiceover. Uh, I actually switched from the Sony over ear headphones to the Bear Dynamics f- yeah. for a similar reason to not hear every little last thing that right. that I probably shouldn't be paying attention to or worrying right. about. And and I'm curious to if if there is something like that that would be akin to that that would give a nice neutral but not overly present like uh like what you're describing yeah when i'm doing voiceovers i, I have some akgs that i use that are i can't think of the, the the um let's see if i can find it real quickly but i have i i, I wear i mean and most many of us who do voiceovers have a way that we do them <laughs> like, like there is a there's a headset and there is a mic and there is a and um and so I, I have a very specific, the, the headsets that I use are the K2, uh, 271s. Um, so those are the, but that's when, I, when I'm doing voiceovers and I need to hear it, I just know what that means. Like, I don't know, I don't, like Bill said, it's not that it's more accurate or less accurate or better, but the K271s are just, I know what I should sound like when I'm getting a good voiceover. And so that's what I wear when I do those. Uh, next question. Next one comes to us from Kyle Hammond in Chicago, Illinois. He says, will the OBSBOT Tiny 2, the one with the 1 to 1.5 inch sensor, be a better Mail 2 client kit camera than the Insta360 pre-release delayed 24 hours? Go, Jeffrey. Uh, there seems to be a lot of great advantages to the uh, new Tiny 2, but uh, still don't, even though it does have that 1 over 1, I don't know how you say it, 1 by 1.5 inch sensor, uh, it, we, I still don't know what type of sensor or what brand of sensor it is. Uh, it does have, they, they went away from the, you know, the range, like you raise your hand to get the access to more of a dynamic thing. So, and I'm hoping that those gestures will be something that you can control from there. And then of course they're, they switching straight to USB three. So if you've got any, any computer that's running a USB 2.0 port, uh, you will not be able to use this camera successfully. Uh, they'll have in in app software on PC or Mac, so you'll be able if you remote into a computer to uh, adjust uh, as an at home kit, then uh, you'll be able to do that from the, from the uh, from the desktop, and so you'll be able to get that uh, nice tight move. But we'll 
we won't know until it actually releases. And and right now it's all in pre-order. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I was just looking at the specs. It looks like it's about uh, you know forty percent smaller, thirty to forty percent smaller than the tiny one. It weighs less, so that might make it better for shipping. But uh, maybe they've gone with a different gimbal mount and different control software. But we'll have to wait and see till it comes out. How it interfaces and how how much AI is actually built into it, you know, and how it how well it works. So, yeah, I I the uh, I, I will say that it's not going to change my my usage at all. I. I haven't used the software for Obsbot. I cannot imagine it's better than what what Insta360 put out. That software is, I mean, I, there are a couple things that I'd like to see different, but not much. It is the best interface to a webcam I've ever used. Um, my only complaint is that I can't open multiple instances if I have multiple cameras. I have to switch between each camera um, to make those adjustments. But it's got curves and it's got control and it's got, you know, all those things. The automatic stuff means nothing to me because they all are wrong. Like all of the automatic tracking is wrong. Too much headroom, you know, too much headroom. And and it just, and so it, so the problem is when you can't get the headroom right or you can't adjust it as a user, it makes all of the auto tracking completely worthless. And so you just go, well, I can't use any of this because none of it's going to be right. So it's, so all that auto stuff that they added to it that they're, that they're touting is not useful to me. I love the idea that they built a bigger chip. They've also built a wider angle lens. So they're at 85 degrees instead of 79 degrees. Never in my entire life have I put on a put a webcam on the top of my computer and thought to myself, wow, I wish this was a little wider. Never, ever, ever have I done that. Ever, you know, like so the thing is is going wider than the than the insta three. Because what happens is, and why that's important, is because that means you have to zoom in. You're using your zoom up every single time that you turn it on because you immediately zoom in. Because and if you have some app that app that requests full resolution, it pops back out. You're now showing a bunch of your office that you didn't want to show because you had it zoomed in. A lot of us have that problem with a lot of webcams. And so the thing is, is that it's just so frustrating. Like what we want is 65 degrees. Like 65 degrees is the right number. And so the 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 uh, the Insta 360 is about 15 degrees too much, and this one's about 20 degrees too much. The 930 is about I don't know like. 80 degrees too much. So the, you know, so the, the, that's the problem is they went the wrong direction. So this is not even moving the needle for me. Like I'm not, not even interested to, in this because they went the, there. They obviously like, I don't, I don't, I literally can't figure out why they, why webcams keep on going wide angle because it's just that someone's going to build one for virtual presence. Like what we're using here someday, someone, they're just going to clean the market out because because the because the only one that's ever been built is the Cisco Precision HD, and it had all kinds of other problems. But it's the only one that had the right angle where you put it on, and it was a person, you know, framed the way I am framed at a desktop at a desktop distance, and it was perfect. And they were selling when when I I had twenty of them, and I I you know when I cleared up my warehouse, I didn't take them because we hadn't used them for years. And they sold for a thousand dollars each at the beginning of the pandemic because they were because they were the best, you know. And everybody who who you know that's what you were trying. To, everyone was trying to get a hold of one. So so it, it's just um, every webcam that comes out. I mean, again, the Insta three hundred and sixty is is the best one so far. If someone gave me a one inch chip with a sixty five inch degree with the Insta three hundred and sixty features, I would five hundred bucks, no problem. Yeah, with an HDMI output, <laughs> five hundred bucks, no problem. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I think the reason they have such a wide-angle lens on them is for the AI so that they can track you. If they, if you're outside the frame 
of that lens, it doesn't know where you are, and so it yeah, can't track the, you. The, the, the so it's got to keep you in and move the gimbal to keep you centered. And if it doesn't have a wide overall point of view, it may not be able to find you to keep you in the center. Yeah, but it's, it's, it's even the still ones that don't have any tracking are all doing this. And it's just, it is just this insane insanity. They're, they're building it for a use case that no one's using. Like maybe somebody's using it for a classroom or whatever, but that's not the major use case. Most people are doing exactly what we're doing. We're putting it on top of our computer and we're trying to enter a, enter a Zoom meeting. And so no one's building for 90% of the market. They're all building for this weird 10% of the market that, you know, that would, that probably is going to get a more expensive camera than what they're selling anyway. If, if I'm putting it in a classroom, I'm getting a, you know, a, you know, bigger webcams that do a lot more. So they're, they're, they're competing into going into a market and trying to, but what they could, if they just differentiated themselves with a bigger chip and, and better, better visual quality, people would buy it and they wouldn't have to spend money on all these stupid little other tchotchkes. Yeah. Go ahead, Jeffrey. So the one thing that the OBSBOT does that I don't think that the Link360 does is that the, you can actually go into the software, flip a switch, and then it reboots, and then it goes into vertical mode, which will allow you yeah, to do the link, link TikToks and Instagram. Okay. So, and with the software, yeah, it doesn't have all the curves, but yeah, you can definitely connect. That I've done a couple videos on how you can use OBSBOTs uh, to create a three-camera studio if you wanted to, and you could control it all through the software there. So, But once again, it's it's all about when it gets released, how it's going to look, and I'll, I'm going to try and get one into the shop to uh, to test out. I'm hoping the competition will push Insta360 to open up an, uh, you know, an SDK for their... They did it for every other camera, and then when we pinged them and talked to them about it, they're like, oh, I, we don't have any plans to do that. I'm <laughs> talking about... Anyway, go ahead, Jason. Um, yeah, I just have one one more anecdotal thought about this. I, I always thought, um, you know, just in my head that the reason that wide um, that webcams were always a little bit wide is because they were the result of an overstock of like you know front facing smartphone cameras that are just notoriously way too that's wide. That's the glass. It's it's the glass. It doesn't matter. The sensor is just the sensor, and the glass is the glass. They could easily have something else built. They're, they're not. They're all different. Like the glass but on the front is Apple, all different. It's like, you know, it's five millimeters thick. So my, I, I always yeah. thought it was just a simplicity of, you know, parts. They're all different. They're not using the same ones though. They're all, they're all different. They're 86 and 89 and 92. And so they're all building there. And, and that's nothing. Like the glass is a nothing, nothingness. The sensor is a big deal. Like you don't see a lot of different sensors across these webcams, but you see a lot of glass because that's just a little machining thing. The, it's just insane. Like, I'm just sorry. Just it's, this whole thing is just totally insane. Every time I see a new one come out, I just go, "Okay, did they did they figure this out?" No, they did not. So, um, so we'll, we'll stick. I'll probably stick with the, the Insta 360. Uh, next question, Chris Fenwick, Emeryville, California. Let's talk about the orange dot, please. I go ahead, Chris. Okay, so I I want to I want to share this because it was a huge revelation uh, to us yesterday, and and everything I'm going to talk about here comes from Keenan Campbell. So first of all, if you don't know what I mean about the orange dot, it's this crazy little UI thing, and it's something that came up in the um, Mac world um, two OSs ago, and its purpose is is that it pops on. If your Macintosh has an active microphone, it's designed for security. They don't want people to spy on you. And the minute it pops on, um, you know that you have an app running that has a, a mic. Now, that's great, except for the fact that a lot of us, some of us, are screen scraping Macs uh, with like Zoom ISO. Now, if you use Zoom ISO in like SDI and 
a Python, I don't think you get that. But if you're screen scraping, that orange dot is there. Well, I had an incident this last week where um, I did I was using Zoom ISO screen scraping through HDMI, and I got pushback from the client. Like, I can't have that dot there. It's like, rah, rah, rah. so I went down to a deep dive. The deep dive yielded through Keenan, uh, by the way, this app. Now, if you start looking for solutions to the orange dot, you'll never find this app find this because the person who wrote this app is colorblind. He calls it yellow dot. Okay. So, and and that, as it turns out, is the key. This is a little app that you can run that can turn off the yellow and or orange dot. Now it's not, um, it's not a simple app. You do have to change some security settings. You have to there's a bit of a cha-cha-cha. You have to like reboot the machine and hold down the power key and go into a safety thing. And I, I, my, my Mac may be completely unsafe right now, but it doesn't have the orange and or yellow dot. And I, I, then I just wanted to show you here also the user interface for it is actually kind of fun because it's, it's a dot up here in the, uh, in the screen. And if you click on it, here's, here's the settings. You can hide it in the menu bar. You can hide the dot faster when it reappears. I don't, I don't know. What, I don't think that does anything. You can launch it at login, and then you can check on it's not yellow, it's orange. So these guys have a good sense of humor. Um, uh, I, by the way, I don't think that they're colorblind. I think they're bypassing a, uh, Apple look scene. <laughs> I think we, 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 might have, we might have outed them. <laughs> a, lot, a lot of people. It, a lot of people it, it might, watch that, the show. So. That might be what it is. But I will say uh, on my... M1 Mac Mini with four HDMI outputs uh, for Zoom ISO. They're all clean now. And uh, I thank you, Keenan, for being more persistent at Googling than I am. <laughs> somebody, somebody discussed something somewhere. But yeah, yeah, it, it, it is a uh, yeah, pretty, frustrating, pretty frustrating thing. So uh, I, Apple is very committed to it. We've done, we've made a lot of, they're very committed to not turning that, that off for anyone. And as far as they're concerned, you should be using a professional level output. If you're going to screen scrape it, you know, they're not, they're not interested in, in helping us. <laughs> like, okay, that's never going to happen. So, so something like this, hopefully we didn't just ruin it for everybody by talking about it on a show, but we'll see. All right. It's good. It's a good subject. I'm glad I'm going to try it soon. <laughs> like right after the show. Uh, next question. Next one comes to us from Joaquin Metis in inter uh, the Imperial Valley, California. Alex, would you please speak on the Generative AI Meetup live stream last night? You know, we had a lot of fun. Uh, so a, a bunch of us, I'm going to try, I don't know if I can name everybody, but a bunch of us uh, got together and um, and we did, a, we covered it. So I, I wanted to go to this Generative AI thing and I, uh, this was a meetup and it was in Fort Mason and it was, I think I might even have some photos. Um, it, it, uh, and it was, you know, it felt like everyone kept on saying the same thing. It feels like homebrew. Like that's what it felt like. It felt like ho like a homebrew meeting. It wasn't this super organized thing. It was just, but it wasn't organized enough. There was food, there was water, there was no, no alcohol, but great food and great water and, you know, juices and other things like that. But that's all you needed. And there were people who were really serious about this. There were some demos that were being shown and we were like, hey, we could live stream this. Okay, I think I have some behind the scenes here. Let me see if I can. Um, this is a little, I'm switching the use of one of my cameras. 
Um, there we go. So this is, you know, this was, this was kind of, this is after it had died down a little bit. So uh, maybe when people are just walking in. So we, we grabbed a bunch of cameras. I think we had five or six cameras there. And um, there were seven of us um, that, that came. And, um, and so uh, it was, it was really great. Just folks that had um, for, for us, well, I use these kind of events. Like I'll tell someone, Hey, can we, we'd love to cover this if I don't have another production going on or whatever. And people just, I just put it out on Discord, like, hey, I'm looking for folks to, who, who want to come. And we got a gr great, a great team. <laughs> people just showed up. Um, I brought some of the gear and then Jeffrey Horn, or Je Jeffrey, sorry, Jeffrey, Je Jeremy Horn. Uh, Jeremy Horn uh, brought, uh, um, he brought all the sound. <laughs> so, so it's all the sound on the switcher uh, for it. Uh, and anyway, so this is kind of what it looked like here. You can kind of see the, the, you know, people just sitting around tables talking and they all have like laptops open. They're showing what they're doing with generative AI. Uh, this was um, the setup that the Jer that Jeremy had. Um, so he had, uh, I think he was using an X32 there. We had some really good uh, ULX um, uh, wireless mics. Uh, he ran all of it off that iPad, which was really cool. Um, this was like the little, uh, that's, well, that's his little setup there. Um, this is, um, there's, that's Michael Slade. And, uh, so this was, we kind of just threw this together. So this is Jeremy's kind of all in one, uh, uh, thing, um, ATEM switcher that we use there. And, um, and so we just, and we streamed it out with an elemental link. We sent it out, we sent it to our web, our YouTube channel, um, put it behind Mokana. And then we also sent it to their Twitch um, from AWS. So, um, so it's it's up there. You can see part of it. We lost we lost internet. <laughs> so, so like on these, you know, it was funny. It, it it's it's much more casual for me when I do it. It, it we uh, uh, we uh, I you know I definitely know what to do. I called you know I had the phone number for the company that's providing the internet. I called them immediately. Like, hey, we're not seeing signal. Work with them to do it. But it's not like a, a show that I would you know that. You know, usually I have, a, I almost never do, I don't, almost, I never do shows where I only have one connection if I'm getting paid for it. <laughs> like, you know, like, like that's, that's kind of a basic one, but it was expensive to get internet there. And they, they, that's the thing that they paid for is for us to have the internet, uh, to make that actually happen. And, um, and it was a lot of fun. I thought, you know, I, I'll be interested to see if, for people who watched, I think John might've watched some of it. Um, I'd love to, to see what people thought of it. Uh, we, there was no real plan it's a meetup there wasn't really a, a sessions so we and the you know folks i think they were they had a lot to do um, that day and so we were so we just kind of made something up we were like well we're here let's uh start pulling people in start talking and it was great uh, uh peter who came uh did uh, peter and max were kind of managing one one area there john and brian were managing another um the other room there was two rooms so they were managing those things um, and then again, we had, uh, Michael, uh, cutting and that was pretty, you know, that was kind of the, it's kind of how we broke it up. We didn't know how we were going to break it up when we got there. We just kind of made it up. And again, I think everyone had a lot of fun. <laughs> we just had a lot of fun doing video. So, uh, and, and just kind of figuring it out. I, I really miss that part of live streaming where it's not like for me, every live stream that we do for Owen, I know is mission critical, you know, three black frames are going to be two weeks of meetings and, you know, like we're, you know, and so just being able to kind of roll with it and figure stuff out and work with a great, you know, just a great team that's really fun to, fun to hang out with. Uh, we had a, we had a really good time. Yeah, go ahead, John. I watched like the first hour of it and uh, the, the, a couple, three or four demos that I saw were pretty interesting. It was amazing how young everybody's there and we're old. Uh, and, and I'd like to heart. see... 
I'd like to see Robert Scoble on for a second hour on Office Hours. That'd be we cool. We should bring Robert. He'd he come on immediately. We, uh, there, uh, if you'd watch Twitter, uh, Robert and I have known each other for a long time. And uh, and I, I saw him in the background. We were interviewing somebody, and I was like, I think that's Robert Scoble. So I went over to say hi, and then the two, the two of us always have fun. So we we sit that we sat there and started talking. He goes, "I want to interview. I want to interview you." So he so he pulled out his phone and interviewed me, and that's on Twitter right now. Um, but uh, I think we could get Robert on easy. So I'll, I'll I'll work on getting Robert. I'll, I'll we'll get him on in the next couple of weeks, and he's he's great. Now go ahead, Jeff. You know, it's funny because I saw your your post uh, when you first asked if anyone wanted to join. And at first, because when I just did a quick search, I, I found the event. Oh, okay. It's the uh, NVIDIA one that, that John is going to talk right. about. And and then it didn't sound right because of the time that you, like the right. specific time didn't match up. I said, that can't be it. Then I found, oh, okay. It's the GDC um, conference right going we weren't, we weren't very clear <laughs> that must have been it and that yeah, exactly. was it didn't seem like there was any um right. access without tickets so i'm literally just now learning there was a third event on the same day on generative ai all happening at the same time that i missed so i'm glad to hear i can go back and watch it yeah i thought i posted a link but maybe i didn't i thought i posted a link to the um uh i didn't post it in discord i, I thought it was somewhere because a bunch of people showed up i don't know where i i think i did everyone and put a link to it but Maybe not. Um, uh, anyway, a bunch of people showed up there. So um, anyway, it, go back and look at it. It'd be fun to think of. We, we should probably brainstorm. If folks, it's on the website, we're going to probably put up one without the lost content, <laughs> you know, from the from the internet outage. Uh, I'll probably post that in the next day or, day or two um, to, to, to do that. But I th I'd love for people to look at it so that when we have another one like that, we can brainstorm because it was really an interesting, what we did is we didn't, we had, we didn't have a moderator. So what we did is we just, um, we just go out and pull people up to the camera. We had a roaming, a couple roaming cameras that we were trying to capture stuff that was moving, which kind of worked and kind of didn't. Um, and then we had one station that, and I, if I did it again, I would have had two stations that were just a, uh, that were simply pulling people up and talking to them because that just worked really well. Like just having people talk about what AI is and, what it's going to and everything else. And then, and then cutting to other things that are covering more of the event. There wasn't much to see and it was really hard to, you know, this wasn't a, a thing where people are used to doing lots of demos. And so they, most of the demos were really hard to shoot just because they were, they weren't, you know, as, as practiced or they hadn't really, you know, this is the probably the first time a lot of them have demoed in public. And so, so it was still a little, little rough around the edges. They great energy, really smart ideas, just hard to shoot. And, 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 you know, and, and I think it gave everybody what they wanted. And again, it gave it that feel of that homebrew. Hey, we're just here. We're really excited. You really did feel like you're in the ground floor or something there. You know, when you were there, there's just, I was joking. I was like, there's going to be like 10 people in this room that are billionaires in about a, a year. <laughs> you know? so, so it's like, you know, like they're all, this is the epicenter of all of this stuff. And uh, we just don't know who they are. Uh, next question. Next one comes to us from John Preto in Las Vegas. I want to share some of the thoughts on NVIDIA's GTC event format. Uh, go ahead, John. I wanted to talk specifically about the format of the event, and not the content of the event, which we'll talk about later. We're right in the middle of it. So <clears throat> they're using this product that I've never heard before called Rain Focus out of Utah. I sent it over to Alex. Um, these guys have customers like Oracle and a, a couple other Fortune 100 companies that they use this platform for. The platform seemed to be okay. Uh, GTC's been super interesting. 
They had scheduled 827 sessions over four-day period, 24 hours a day. They go all night long. Obviously, they're trying to reach people overseas. I just, I don't understand why they crammed everything into four-day sessions. And um, it's just, just impossible to consume all the data. And half of the stuff has been live and half of it's been recorded. Um, been some amazing, amazing stuff. The uh, the keynote was spectacularly produced. Uh, it was it was obviously recorded and it took cues from Apple as far as the production goes. Right. Uh, the music was done by the London Sin- uh, Symphony Orchestra. <laughs> uh, it was spectacular. It's not over the top at all. I, I felt like I was watching Star Wars with John Williams. Um, but I just can't believe they smashed all that content into into a four day period. Yeah, yeah. I don't understand the. The thought, I mean, it's, it's just, it's event producers thinking about events and different and trying to stuff all the stuff into it rather than there could have been all that pre, you know, you could have been releasing stuff for weeks, you know, and make it the GDC month or the G, you know, like, you know, the, you know, GTC uh, month uh, or, or whatever, where you're releasing a bunch of stuff and then you're having live events all day, you know, every day, but they're happening, you know, in different times. And there's enough that an individual could watch all of them, you know, like, or, Maybe and what Apple did that I thought was really smart with their developer uh, outreach was that they did the same talk uh, in different time zones. So they 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 would do them out of Singapore and then they would do another one that was out of out of the the U.S. or or London or whatever. But they do they have typically two or three different times. They did the same talk and let people come to them and ask questions. And that was I thought genius, you know. And happened you know months after the the original one. I would come right after it, so I would have done. You know, have all the stuff, have your keynote, uh, have a couple other big things that are happening during the week, and then just create another two or three months of talking through all those things. There's no reason. They just gave up. A lot of people saw a lot less because of that. You know, go ahead, Jeffrey. So, uh, first of all, yeah, the keynote was awesome. Uh, uh, Jensen Huang, I think that's his name. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like the fact that he wasn't in the kitchen this time, like he has been in the last mm-hmm. couple of years, pulling pulling stuff out of the oven pre-made but uh he did he had a lot of stuff that needed to come out at that point so i could say i understand why they felt like it had to be pushed out so quickly so fast but none of us had any uh, sense of it though that's the problem none of us had any sense of what came out because it was just they they could have just released a bunch of videos over a couple weeks or all all the videos last week and then they, they did they did hardware they did they did cloud, uh, like for instance, they had uh, all these uh, new servers, these great servers with the dual mm-hmm. ARM chips in them, and uh, uh, the Grace chip that they're calling it that in in honor of Grace Hopper. Grace Hopper was a co-developer of COBOL, and uh, she actually created the first uh, computer compiler mm-hmm. out there. So it's great to have that type of things, and then of course a whole whole rash of of new servers that are air cooled. They're, they're, they they don't need to have fans in them. So it's going to redevelop the server room, which is what I really like about that. And of course, that whole cloud aspect to it. So if you don't have a server room to put uh, the L4 into or the L40 into or the HC100 into, then you can actually rent out space and create yeah. your own AI system. So a lot of great stuff. And yeah, it was a lot of, and there's still a lot to go. But right yeah. now, I was really impressed with how they handled it, especially with the keynote, which 
90% of the people, 80% of the people would probably be watching and not watch anything else. By the way, that was Admiral Grace Hopper. She deserves the honorific. She was amazing. Uh, the, uh, uh, what was I going to say? The, the, the issue is, uh, the, number one is keynotes are dead. <laughs> you know, like live keynotes, live keynotes are dead. Uh, if you look at what NVIDIA did here, I saw only pieces of it. It was really impressive. Uh, what Apple's doing uh, within two years, there won't be any more live keynotes. Like there, this is it. It just makes way more sense if you want to tell your story. Why do you have a bunch of people that are looking stiff, um, trying to do the best they can? This is not their job, um, and making them do that, it, it's over. Like it's just over. And and I think there'll be a handful of companies that are really good at it that'll hang on to it for a little while longer. But the idea of a, a live keynote, I think, is over. Go ahead, Jeff. Not to mention that it completely eliminates the possibility of some of those famous yeah. Yeah. flubs and yeah. errors and, and 100%. you know, Murphy's Law. But, you know, I'll, I'll say um, as far as the keynotes, I, I, I agree and I love these well-produced, well-put-together, which makes for an easier to consume and follow keynote. But in terms of the structure, you know, I'll, I'll disagree. I, I appreciated what they did because they, they, you know, kind of divided it in tracks. So for instance, there was a, um, there was just a voice or speech track and, and you could just register for them, but they know that all of these will be available for replay after the fact. So it lets you, I know, you but know, if- we've, if you're going to watch it later, they just could have put it out some other time. Like that's the problem. Like it's it, it it's the the advantage of doing something live is so that you can experience it together, you know. And if you're not going to experience it together, just put it out over time. Like and I'll say the structure of the track was nice. I think some of the content and and to what you're talking about, some of these were clearly recorded and still painful to watch bad audio there was one where someone was demonstrating something i think it was the head of marketing he was demonstrating something and it it would he couldn't get it working he was like you know a lot of dead air and i think it was recorded it's because they recorded it all and they just they're punching out they were trying to create too much content at the same time they have a team that's overwhelmed they're trying to put it all together they're they're not sending out webcams they're not doing all the things that you're supposed to do there's you know that it's because they put too much into too little you know it was too it was too yeah go go ahead john real quick uh, something real important uh alex so, so uh, Jensen said in, in the keynote that the physical version of GTC before pandemic, they had 9,000 attendees and they had over a quarter of a million. This one was completely virtual. So that's important. Yeah. And that's where we're going <laughs> because they, you know, because he, he, he could see that he could see what was happening there. He could see that we're reaching way, you know, that you're, there's this huge market that they're not getting to. And the mistake that people make about, they always have around uh, events is thinking that you have to make the content people won't come to the conference if you now and they did it all virtual and because they they figured that out but you could have physical a physical event because people want to hang out with each other and talk about this stuff it won't affect the attendance at all like the virtual event will only make a physical event more popular because people want to go and see their friends and see the things and they're excited about the epicenter of it but but you don't but the virtual is i mean again you're you're seeing the future there i mean nvidia's always been a little you know a couple of years ahead of everybody else <laughs> so so there you're just seeing you're just seeing what's going to happen to events across the board yeah go ahead jeff you guys don't have to by the way if you've already raised your hand you can just keep talking like it's just 
And um, well, I know sometimes, you know, you want to move on. Mm-hmm. Um, and the last thing I'll say about, you know, why I did appreciate it, we've all been to the real world in-person conferences yeah. where you follow one track and you're Which kicking yourself because there's another session you wish you could yeah, go that's... to, but they're at the same time. Now you can go back and watch those other ones. So I, I do like that that aspect. I never thought free. about it. I, I never I never thought about the... Uh, um, I, you know, I never uh, really considered the multi-track thing as a problem until I went to TED. I was at TED Africa, and they they had everybody in the same room the whole day, the whole three days, and the it was so much more powerful. Not like a little more powerful. It was like a moment. You know, you had everybody because when you walked out for every break, everyone around you had just seen what you had seen, and so now you had something to talk about, and now you had something to cross. and And I never wanted to do another event with tracks ever again. You know, like, and so the whole thing is, is to me, I want to extend it out. I want to, but a unified experience, a unified, um, you know, watching those things. And and nowadays with virtual events, you can just make it longer. They could have taken this whole thing and had their keynote. They announce all this stuff and then just spent, because it's not going to make any difference. It's not going to, when you put this much out at one time, it's not going to hit the market any faster <laughs> because no one saw it, you know, like, and, and so the thing is, is that, um, so, you know, stretching that all out. And having or just dumping all the things that are there, but then having live discussions about all those things. Um, and Nvidia is putting out so much so fast. I feel like they could do they could do a live session every day about a different vertical. You know, they could have the cloud session, they could have the hardware session, they could have, and they could be just talking to people about what it means and how it works. And they'd have ten or twenty thousand people there every single day. You know, listening to them talk, and it's just it's just uh, you know, and I just feel like they're missing that opportunity. But we'll see. Next question. Next one comes to us from Samuel Nordvik in Norway. Uh, what platforms do you use to consume audio-only podcasts? Go ahead, Courtney. Well, call me old school, but I just use uh, Google Assistant. And I ask for, uh, play me the latest podcast of, name the podcast, and it plays it. Uh, same thing with the Amazon uh, Echo. I use that as well. And I have both of them, and both of them can find it from TuneIn or, mm-hmm. or uh, iHeartRadio or one of them whatever podcast source is out there and it plays it. So I don't even subscribe to anything. You go, John. I get super frustrated with audio only podcasts because they're always talking about something and showing something on screen that I want to see, whether it's twit or Rogan. I only watch video podcasts now. Go Jason. Um, so I started with the Audible app of all things, which at one point I think mm-hmm. did allow you to get a podcast because I was I really liked that I could speed up the voices. That depends, you know, some podcasts you really need to crank because they're really slow. Um, some not so much. The um, what I currently use is Overcast, and I adore mm-hmm. it. I adore the developer. I do, I adore the way that he goes about it. Um, everything about the app is great. Overcast is the top of the heat. I, I, I have both Overcast and the Apple podcast on there, and they're both subscribed to the same things. But Overcast is great. Got a, got a lot of good features. I think we have to watch the... I, I keep the Apple podcast one running because it's it's very, very good, and it's easy for me. Every Everything I have has it. Um, and it, it works really well, and I think there's going to be more and more integrated tools that work only in the Apple podcast thing. So I think that I, I keep tracking it as well. Next question. For John Banwell, San Diego, happily switching control between the M1 Mac Mini, iPhone 13 Pro Max, and Apple TV with the Nufi Air 75 keyboard. And he says, thank you, Alex, for the hint in that direction. But it does not work with YouTube's app on Apple TV. Other apps are okay. Any ideas? 
It's really interesting. Uh, yeah, I I haven't actually used it, so I'm, I'm glad that I'm glad that we're getting better review. Again, someone there was an EVS operator in our office that was using it um, for all of her work, and and I was like, what is that keyboard? It's like a keyboard I hadn't seen before, and it looks really great. I haven't. Uh, this is the new fee, and it is a uh, it looks like a great a great keyboard. I'm thinking of buying one as a test to, to see how it works, um, and uh, it it looks really great. I'm glad you're enjoying it. I have no idea why the YouTube app doesn't work there. I will say the YouTube app is very much written in a very specific way that doesn't do a lot of things that an, a regular Apple TV uh, app does. So that's uh, yeah. Go, Jason. Well, as a dirty hack goes, uh, there's no reason you can't you know connect to any one of those other devices like your your iPhone, right, mm-hmm. and use the remote, um, you know, with a with a right. um, what are they called uh, a macro, basically, right? Yep. Next question. Next one comes to us from Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida. Wirecast question specifically, what does a green flashing stream icon mean when successfully streaming? Live stream on YouTube looks okay, and it notes excellent connection. Thanks. Good, good, Jeffrey. So what it's doing is it's still trying to negotiate the uh, the connection. Once it hits solid, it means that it matched everything that you asked for. Like, for instance, if you uh, go into the settings and say, I wanted 1080p, I want it to run at six uh, megabytes per second, and uh, and it's not hitting six megabits per second, then it will continue to flash in some cases. So it's still trying to figure out, or it's it's not getting uh, it's not getting a return from YouTube saying, yeah, we do have the connection, so it'll just flash uh, until it does hear back from it. Next question. Chris Clark in Tempe comes to us with this one. New York Times published a feature today on businesses installing their own studios for in-house productions, live streams, webinars, and so forth. Implications for independent video producers. Go ahead, Courtney. Probably not too much. Uh, You know, corporations have had their own video departments for years, media departments for years. Uh, Having an individual space dedicated for streaming, that's convenient. They're probably having more trouble now getting people to even come to the office that are commuting back and forth via video over Zoom. So I I don't think it's going to make a big impact. Good, Bill, real quick. Two quick little things. Number one, in corporate, I've seen this a lot. I've had big companies that decided to build their own studios. They built them. They used them for about three or four or five years, typically. And then they shut them down because the labor and having people in-house to run them was just not sensible. Take that with the fact that it used to be you had to go to a recording studio to record. Now everybody expects to do it at home. I think videos following that same path. More people will have so much better results from their personal systems that the corporate systems will be diminished as time goes on. Yeah, I I built a lot of those studios. <laughs> Sorry, I, I have built a lot of those studios into a lot of big corporations, and they're still used them. They're still they're still they run them every day, um, all day. And uh, a lot of times they have. What's interesting is a lot of times they're not. It's uh, contractors that run them. In fact, we ran uh, one of our partners. We built the studio and then we ran it for years uh, for them. And so that's that's something that's usually a pretty popular solution. So uh, I, I do think you're going to see uh, corporations. They should be putting them. They should have a insert studio on every floor and a, um, a studio that pulls all those things together for shows uh, in you know every major headquarters because they're they they should be. This is how you get out to your employees. This is how you get out to your customers. This is how you get out to the press. And they're, you know, they're, they're way behind and they're, they're catching up. They're, they're starting to realize that this is, this is the new way to engage with folks. And so I think that's going to happen. The big mistake they make is they talk about their own products instead of talking about the industry that they sit in. 
you know, Salesforce did stuff about small and medium-sized businesses or how to run or news that's much like CNBC. They'd have a much larger number of people watching it rather than talking about their own stuff. Uh, next question. Next one comes to us from Brett Baylood in uh, Bilo in Appleton, Wisconsin. Once the Adobe Firefly is finally released, will its tight Creative Cloud integration eventually crush Midjourney and Dali's competition and local stable division installs as Adobe tends to do? Go ahead, John. Uh, it's a great question, Brad. I've been talking about this for three months. Firefly is their name. They they had to get this out on the street because they've just been getting crushed by by Midjourney. Uh, all the stuff's going to be integrated into Photoshop, Illustrator, Premiere, After Effects. Uh, we'll see how good of a job it does in in generative versus Midjourney, who's just killing everybody right now. But if I can bring these models generative as layers into Photoshop, that's going to be huge. And if I can do if I could do vector art in Illustrator generative, that's going to be huge. Uh, and then text to video will be huge in Premiere and After Effects as well. So um, the, the other interesting thing yesterday mentioned in the keynote is Adobe and Getty Images both signed deals with NVIDIA. And the interesting thing about that is remember that Adobe has their own stock photography. Getty has their own stock photography for all their generative will be all licensed. And that gives them a huge advantage. Yeah, the... Um, uh... A lot of people don't use Photoshop. A lot of people do. A lot of people don't. <laughs> so I think that there's still a pretty big, pretty big uh, window out there. And I, I, I watch to see what happens with Affinity. I bet you Affinity is going to start adding generative um, tools, possibly even partnering with Midjourney to get those layers back out. Uh, next question. Kyle Hammond in Chicago, Illinois. What's your current QR code generator of choice? Go, Jason. Um, so a while ago I used, and by the way, this is actually a very important thing because if you get one of the junk ones and there are a million of them, um, you will end up getting routed through something else and then they will try to bill you and bad things just ensue. Um, in the past, I had good luck with a SANA AC ANA QR code generator um, from apps for me with an at for um, the A in, in the app store. But um, actually, I use iWork Automation and just a little bit of Objective C and um, and a little bit of Python, and it, it you know it happens automatically and natively in macOS. So um, yeah, there you go, Jeffrey. Yeah, I totally agree with Jason. Uh, you don't want to get those uh, secondary because if if the link breaks, then then they get to control of your QR code. Uh, however, if you do go online, Bitly does have a QR code generator that you can use to uh, transfer your Bitly links through. Uh, what I do is I use Adobe Photoshop. Adobe Photoshop does create QR code. And GIMP, if you if you don't use uh, Photoshop, GIMP will uh, also has a QR code generator inside there you can use. Yeah, not I, I, I build a lot of QR codes <laughs> for what I do. And uh, when you start building the first ones, you're just happy to have QR codes. Um, but after the, after a while, you start looking at everybody else's QR codes, and then you start looking at your QR codes. And there are a couple things you want to look for. I use QR Factory. It doesn't have quite everything that some of the online ones do, but I will not use a web page. Like, I will not use a web page to do a QR code. You don't know what's happening there. Um, so I use QR Factory on the Mac. I'm really happy with it. Um, and... Um, uh, again, I, and I work with them. They get a lot of requests from me like, hey, I need this, I need this. So uh, number one is being able to change the shape of the dots. So you might want to have circle dots. You might want to have 
slightly rounded dots. It's also being able to round the corners on the targets. So the targets on the on the on the corners, the registration targets, you can make them rounded. You can give them a little bit more juice to it. The other thing is being able to add a logo to the center and having the dots reflow around them. Um, so that's a really important thing. You don't want it to feel like it's just cut and pasted over top of the dots. You want it to be there, and then being able to control the resiliency of it. So how how resilient is the code uh, you have to be able to turn that up and down you should be able to export it as a um, illustrator file uh, you know or some kind of um, uh, some vector based so that you can scale it up so those are some of the things you want to think about as you start to create those um, obviously it should be pings and photoshops and everything else but those are the things to think about yeah go ahead jeff what, what real, is the resiliency quick. i'm not familiar with it, with it what will that repeat means. the code a couple times um inside of it and that what that'll do is it'll make it so that you can see it from a long distance, you, you blurry little, you know, so, but it makes it, you know, typically makes it a little denser. And so you have to kind of figure that out. And then, you know, so that's, the, you. there's, and usually you can just turn that up. It's a dial and you'll see it changing and increasing so that it ha it, what it's doing is it means if you only see part of it, it'll still work. Um, you know, that kind of thing. So those are the, that's the resiliency, you know, setup that, that's there. So, those are the things you want to work at. QR code has QR Factory has almost all of those things in it on the Mac. It's the best app I've used so far. Next and that's question. QR Factory three from Single and yeah. Batch QR code. That's a new one by me. That's cool. Yeah, QR Factory three, and that's the one I use. And 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 there's a lot of, you know, again, I give them, I send them long lists of things, and they seem to cut through them. I don't know if I'm the one that they're doing them for, but they definitely uh, are. Are you know, the next version had a lot of the things that I was waiting for. So anyway, they're 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 very responsive. Next question. Douglas Carmichael, with Amazon cutting jobs at Twitch, do you think Twitch has a platform as a platform is becoming less relevant? Many electronic musicians I know stream on Twitch and they praise the platform's sense of community and discoverability. We'll have to see. We'll just have to see what where where Twitch goes. Um I think that uh I don't know, you know, Twitch is, you know, constantly in battle with uh, with YouTube. Very different culture, though. So the two of them don't don't seem to cross over very much. I, I think Twitch has got a very unique culture that I think it'll be. I don't think they're going to get rid of it, but it'll be it'll see how much how much uh, service they get and whether it, uh, you know. But they they did, did spend a billion dollars on. <laughs> so anyway, next question. Next one comes to us from Eric Price in Kansas City. Uh, I have a local organization that wants to continue broadcasting events to Facebook using only their phone, but need better audio. What range of options are there for getting good mic'd audio into a phone stream from cheap up to deluxe before moving to a PC and so forth? Good, Courtney. Well, you can look at the DJI uh, mic, which has, it comes <laughs> It comes with adapters to plug directly into iPhone or Android phone uh, on the bottom of its little tiny receiver. So you can stick that on the bottom of your phone. The receiver is tiny and it gives you two wireless mics with pretty decent fidelity that you can plug either lavaliers into or you can use the built-in mics on each one of them. And it's about 300 bucks, charges automatically, and is wireless. I'm sorry, we're going to something's behind here. Um, anyway, so the, uh, yeah, and uh, go ahead. Uh, I don't know where I'm at. Uh, Jeff know. Cohen, I think, was next. Yeah, go ahead, Jeff. Jeff you had a comment? Or, or yeah, house is about 10 bucks for cost. I'll remind everyone that all you really need is one of these dongles, the USB, you know, they call it the official one is the Apple camera adapter, uh, lightning to USB or vice versa. But uh, 
you can try one of the Amazon ones for 10 bucks. You know, they usually work. And then you can plug a standard audio interface into your iPhone. It works great. So if you already have gear, you don't have to do anything but get this. And then, and then of course, same thing would hold true if you just wanted, for example, a USB microphone. You get a standard USB microphone. It doesn't have to have lightning. Some do. And again, with this, it'll work. And, and the better ones will actually allow the phone volume, for example, to actually control the the true volume and some let the um the if there's a gain setting in what you're using to record it'll actually control the gain of the interface if the interface supports it yep yep go down yeah the other solution a lot of us use alex and i both use ceremonic is a company that has little lightning driven uh xlr mic adapters they have phantom power so if you're really looking to get a professional microphone into the web via an iphone with a lightning connector that's something to look in they have both mono and stereo versions yeah and um i uh I've been using Ceremonic for quite for it's specifically for getting stuff into Facebook. Now I'm taking Letrosonics and you know shotgun mics and all kinds of other stuff to get into into a phone. Uh, and this the reason that we do this a lot of times is actually not just because that's all I have, but because the the um, spreading of it across a network sometimes angles towards a phone, so it'll actually give you better spread across a platform if you're using a mobile device to get in. And so we we oftentimes lean that direction. All right, we are jumping into the second hour. And uh, and so we're very excited to have Michael uh, Santucci here uh, from Sensophonics Hearing. And uh, so we're going to be talking about about the products that, that Sensatonic uh, uh, produces and, and, and where uh, Michael came up with, you know, came to these these products. Uh, and we're very excited to have that. Marty, Marty brought Michael on. Uh, Michael, welcome to the show. Oh, can't hear you. I think you're, you might be muted there. Oh, oops, sorry, I'm muted. Sorry. Fantastic. Okay, now we're on. We're I'm glad, ha happy to be here today. And I just, I do want to reach out and say thank you to Marty Atias because uh, we've known each other a long time. My passion, as you'll find out today, is hearing loss prevention, especially related to the music industry, all aspects of it. And Marty and I connected years ago because of his passion for hearing loss prevention. And so I just wanted to tip my hat to, to Marty. Absolutely. It's, it's an important subject. I, I was in the music industry in my early years and went to probably a thousand shows. And now I have a constant ringing <laughs> in my ears. So I'm never yeah. alone. I'm never alone. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That yeah. we can talk about tinnitus if that's questions that come later. Yeah. Uh, I can tell you a little bit about myself. For those yeah. that don't know, I'm an audiologist. Uh, I have a doctorate in, I'm based in Chicago, Illinois. We have a musician's clinic here. It's the only musician's hearing clinic in the world uh, that all we do is see musicians. It's been here for over 35 years, and we've seen close to 50,000 musicians wow. from every aspect of the industry, from, you know, uh, camera guys going near the stage. I know some of you guys are in that group, to musicians from big A-list performers and band directors at the high school level and DJs, the whole gamut of music industry uh, comes here and we've got a lot of experience with that. Uh, my passion has driven me to get involved with groups like the Audio Engineering Society, where I have a technical committee of hearing and hearing loss prevention. Also, I work with the World Health Organization, who now has predicted 
The next pandemic will be hearing loss. They're predicting two and a half billion young people between 15 and 35 are going to lose hearing in the next 20 years because of smartphones and more shows and concerts and louder shows than ever. So there's a real movement to get everybody on board uh, to prevent that stuff. My company is called Sensophonics. Uh, we have this clinic, but we also design products. So the philosophy of the company is to provide hearing protection without really compromising sound quality. And huh. that's the challenge, right? Well, but And, and to, to back up a little bit, sure. what, what causes the hearing loss? Like why does loud, I know this sounds like a very basic thing, but just to kind of set the ground, the ground plane, uh, what, what is it about that loud, loud noise that damage permanently damages your hearing? Let's talk about the hearing system. Okay. I'm not going to get technical with the, how it functions and all that. Mm -hmm. Uh, the purpose of hearing for human beings, think about it. It wasn't really speech and music way back. It's, and still is survival. Right. This is the five survival sense. Everybody says vision, and I say vision goes to bed every night. Hearing does not go to bed ever. Right. In fact, your hearing's working when you sleep. You're getting your alarm clock, somebody breaking in, the smoke alarm, all those things, an intruder, right? This are, these are the things that hearing does. It's also 360 degrees. So in a world when humans first started where there was no loud sound, it's the perfect amplification system for a quiet world to hear soft sounds from great distances so you can decide whether you need to evacuate or not. And really, that's the purpose of hearing. And like I said, it's still working when you sleep. Then in the last 50 years, as far as the music industry goes, or the last 120 years for the Industrial Revolution, we start popping some loud sound on the system. And those little nerve fibers are not designed for loud sound. They're designed to hear soft sounds. So we over-amplify them. And just like any speaker system, you over-amplify the speakers and they start getting damaged. Or I call it injured because damage is a speaker. Injured are the speakers in your ears, right? It's an injury. And people injure themselves all the time in the music industry. Uh, because that's what the ear is not, is built, is not built for loud sounds. So that's really what happens. The nerve cells in the inner ear, very fragile nerve cells, uh, are all coded to every frequency. And when they're stimulated, they convert vibration responses to your ears. That's where the injury occurs in the nerve cell area. And unfortunately, we can't regrow dead nerve cells. So this is something that is uh, something very challenging to say the least. Yeah. And, and it's, and it's one of those things that um, right now it's just been a, it, when you, and, and I guess the question is, is it true? There's always like, if you ring, if you hear your ears ringing, you've done damage. Is that, is that a, a, an old wives tale <laughs> or is it, or is it actually true? Well, ringing is called tinnitus, not itis, right? Itis means inflammation and infection. So tinnitus means a Greek word that says, I have noise in my head. It's right, not a right, disease. Right. Well, if you hear ringing right it's, after it's, something it's happens, so something happens and you hear ringing, uh, is that something, is that, does that tell you you've done damage? Yes, that tells you that you've injured yourself. Now, whether it's permanent or not is another thing, but it's a warning signal. 
And so if it only occurs after a loud sound exposure, obviously that's probably the cause. Other causes, though, could be things you ingest make your ears ring, certain medications, caffeine, uh, also grinding your teeth or any other mechanical issues in your jaw and neck can also cause those injuries. So. Right. And, and so what, what products have you built that, will, um, that are really designed to, to protect musicians from this? Well, it started with earplugs and earplugs, of course, sound horrible because you right. really, when you buy an over-the-counter foam plug, it wipes out more high than low. And that's typically what happens. And so the fidelity isn't there for a jackhammer operator. It doesn't matter if the fidelity of that jackhammer suddenly changed. But if you're a violin player in an orchestra, having the frequency uh, curve really thrown off is is hard to deal with. So there was an ear earplug created by Mead Killian at Edomotic Research. I was the beta tester back in 1989. It's still the flattest one out. Goes flat to about 8K and it allows people to reduce levels by 9, 15 or 25 dB. Now though, there are active earplugs. So it's uh, obviously we're getting into more technical stuff with active earplugs. We have at Sensophonic something called the 3DME. And what it is, is a, an active earphone with mics on it. And you have an app on your phone that you can record, you can reduce the mic levels on either ear, or you can also change the limiting so you can protect yourself. So you can turn the mics up. If you have hearing loss, you can turn them down. It's all analog. And then you have seven bands of graphic EQ that you can change the way you want the mics to sound. So we fit these to the New York Metropolitan Opera Orchestra because they hate earplugs, but here's an earplug that you can EQ the way you want it to sound. Right. And you can decide by using ears differently, you can turn the violinist down next to you that was too loud and you wish you could turn him down. And you could also enhance your violin if you have some hearing injury from years of playing. And the only ones that know it, of course, are you because it's on your phone, this app. So that's the latest in hearing protection that we developed. How much does something like that cost? Uh, they're not cheap. They're about eight hundred dollars. Yeah, I mean, a set. There's, so there's a bunch of us that spend a lot of money on headphones. Yeah, Yeah, and it's also an in-ear monitor system, right? So it has yeah. the ability to plug into any Shure wireless. I should mention companies wireless belt packs. Uh, and then you can blend the mics in with the stage because you always see wow. musicians pulling one ear out during a show all the time, right? Yeah. And uh, that's bad for your hearing. Your brain yeah. hears binaurally and it adds 6 dB of perceptional volume increase by having two. If I put 90 dB signals in both ears, your brain thinks it's 96. Right. If I pull one away, I've got to turn it up 6 dB louder to sound as it, as it did with two. And right. if the open ear is getting bashed by the stage and it gets loud enough in your brain, it switches to this ear and you have to turn it up some more. It's like being on a phone in a crowded room and you cover your ear, you can hear better. So taking one out is really dangerous for hearing. And the idea is if you've got the mics on both sides, you can get those localization and spatial cues back that you are missing with just a stereo plugged up ear. Right, right. Absolutely. And because and, that's what I was going to ask you. So you can use the ones you're talking about now. How do they do they connect to the what what frequencies do they connect to for in-ear? Because we have a lot of folks that use in-ear monitors. Right. We we actually plug into whatever wireless system. I do not make wireless. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm an audiologist now. This is a, it's a separate belt pack oh, that piggybacks into no, I into so, a so wireless pack. It, yours are because yours are wired. I can't picture actually what yours are. Yours are wired, right? Are they are they wired, the, the yes. active ones are wired to a belt pack or wired to? That's correct. Every ear monitor on stage is wired. There's no Bluetooth ear monitors because right. of the delays that would be there. So everybody's trying 100%. to get in real time, and they're all plugged into a an FM pack. Right. So the ones that and the ones that you're plugging in. So what is it when you're not plugging them into an in-ear monitor? uh, What do you is what what are the what are the? It's got its own belt pack. It's got got a small belt pack, and that belt pack has a jumper cable to the to the wireless in-ear monitor system. That's great. So it's basically you're wearing a second pack, but it's very small. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's been used by you know Cindy Lauper uses it. So if I can get women to put it on, I'm doing okay because they don't always dress the same as guys with jeans and stuff to put belt packs on. No, no, absolutely. Issue. Absolutely. Yeah, we got a couple questions here from the uh, from the panel. Jeff, go ahead. Actually, I just wanted to recommend folks check out uh, uh, Dr. Santucci has some great videos on the uh, the YouTube channel for, for Sensophonics that are incredibly detailed animated looks at how hearing works, essentially. And doctor, I don't know if you want to talk about them, but I mean, they show going through the ear canal and what's happening and what's moving and, and where some of the, how some of the problems develop. It, it's really incredible to watch. It's actually a video, not by us. It was a video done by Brandon Pleisch, who is an anatomical illustrator. And he put this thing together and it was so fantastic. I asked his permission. Of course, he gladly granted and it's all over the place. I send it everywhere. But it's it's showing how your whole auditory system reacts to Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. So it's playing music and showing the eardrum and showing the nerve cells and showing how they all get up to the brain in a very detailed and technical. Yeah, it's 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 pretty deep, but uh, but interesting. Yeah, it's great. Marty. Oops, you're muted, Marty. Ah, Hi there. Hey, Michael. Um, Hi, Marty. I started. uh, How are you doing? (laughs) You and I started working together when. I was um, working with television anchors, sports uh, announcers, and um, you had produced products specifically for them, as well as for uh, for comms. You had a comms. You have a comms headset, and you were also working with law enforcement, uh, FBI, CIA, that kind of people who wear in your monitors like all day long, like comms radio monitors. And so um, tell us a little bit about those products and, and, and what people need to watch out for when wearing those, you know, the very common coil cords uh, for in-ear monitors. Sure. Well, for in-ear monitors, whether it's an in-ear monitor for a performer on stage or it's a communication device, at ear level for somebody listening to audio or producing with a mic on it. Uh, The loudness level is determined by a couple things. One is your preference, obviously, and two is how much it blocks the sound from the room. So here's the problem. When I look at some of these IFB ear molds, they have no isolation at all. They retain the piece in your ear 
but it's not blocking anything. So if you're near a stage or a very light, loud sound source, you're turning up the radio or your communication device because you've got to hear over everything. So that's the idea. Oops. So um, isolation is, is the key to all that. I didn't plug my computer in when I switched, Marty. Hate to say that during the show, but I think I'm going to run out of power unless I run and get my cable. <laughs> so anyway, uh, sorry. We had trouble with setting up this morning, guys. So It happens. Fault. It happens. Absolutely. Anyway, anyway, those devices, uh, communication is, is important, but it has to block sound in order for it not to be worn loud. That's really, it's all about signal to noise ratio. So if it's really loud where you are trying to listen and you have no isolation, the idea is to turn it up louder. And where does isolation occur best? At the second bend of your ear canal, all the way down the canal. And, and for things so that are active, the deeper like it, it goes. And for things yeah. that are active, like, a, um, like an Apple, the Apple ones or the Bose ones that are doing kind of active noise cancellation, Mm -hmm. are those mm -hmm. are those do those make a difference as far as that isolation goes it does it helps but the thing about the active anr which is really helpful it only works in low frequencies mm -hmm. right? right it does it, it's not fast enough to catch a signal that's at 8,000 hertz and throw a 180 degree out of phase signal back at it. It's not quick enough to get anything really below 1,000 hertz is all you're getting. So sounds above 1,000 hertz, which is a lot of guitar and keyboard work right. uh, on a stage, surely are not getting muffled much at all. And that's why you, you really don't see any kind of over-the-ear headphone unless it's like a Vic Firth really isolating headphone uh right. otherwise the noise canceling is reducing bass and not the highs and on a stage that's not really the the idea on a stage thing. not so good on a plane excellent yeah, yeah it's great for it's perfect <laughs> for plane noise yeah that's i literally can't fly it's without them i put them on, i've used yeah. them for so many years that I mean, bose and now apple and i just took them on and i just turn it on and i'm like okay i don't have to listen to anything anymore <laughs> Um, but these I these I wear and they block up to 34 dB across the frequency band. I'm up yeah. to 45 in the highs. So yeah. the Bose people, when some kid, excuse me, some, some kid starts screaming on the plane, they're still hearing that kid. Yeah, it's yeah. coming through, right? And me, I only see the open mouth going because <laughs> he's really blocked. So if you really want to get rid of everything on the yeah. plane, get isolating silicone ear molds. No, absolutely. Go ahead, Jason. Um, well, so I, I've got to say, as as a drummer beginning in the early 90s, um, and then a guy on stage, uh, you know, shooting at least 500 shows, who used Edemotics the whole time, um, and now am 40 with perfect hearing, I'm living proof that this does work. Uh, my question was about active noise canceling, because if you go 180 degrees out of phase to cancel a frequency, aren't you just increasing the SPL on the ear? I, I've, I've never really understood how that could protect hearing. Sure, it could cancel phase, you know, it could cancel a frequency, but isn't that like more sound? No, it's less sound, but like I said, I think it, it really isn't injuring the ear in any way. It does help protect, and there's been tons of use on it in the military and other aspects that really work great. So so I'm not against noise-canceling earphones. I think anything, and the best would be to get an isolating earphone that has noise cancellation ability, too. I mean, the more you can put in, the better. Right. And the best protection is cans over a, an earplug in your ear. Right. So we can keep getting. But there comes a limit 
where bone conduction steps in. So these guys work in the aircraft carrier where the planes are landing on it and the vibrations come up to their bones at 170 dB. There's no way to stop it. Right. And is, so it's problematic. And does bone conduction have the same impact on your ears as as sound in, in your ears? Uh, not you're hearing it all the time. Right. Right. You hear through bone conduction all the time. So it doesn't get louder when you put anything in your ears or less loud. Uh, it, it will start going. At, it takes more vibration to get the bone conduction working, right? Yeah. But you'll stand in any, and low, lows vibrate much more than highs. You'll get on a stage, and you'll notice all that bass frequency when you're standing on the stage. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. so there's no blocking that at the ear level. So some is bone conduction, but you're also hearing a little bit through bone conduction. Your head's a bone, right? And your ear canal has bony structures around it. So it's, it's, it is vibrating that way as well. Let's go ahead and jump into the questions. We've got a lot of them stacking up. First one comes from Marty Adius in Maryland. He says, does our hearing change as we age and how can changes in our hearing affect our work mixing sound? The thing about mixing sound, changes in your hearing are gradual. So most mixers in a studio might notice it, but I have live sound mixers that don't get hearing tests. So let me start by saying this. Anybody in audio should have a relationship with an audiologist. If you're a musician, I would imagine if you're a photographer, you'd probably have a relationship with an optometrist, right? I mean, it's just makes sense. So if you're audio, you should be checking your hearing every year. I call you guys small muscle athletes, right? They get a physical every year. You need a hearing physical every year. That's the only way you're going to be able to determine whether something is protecting you and whether you're doing something correctly. So uh, mixing sound is something that I get people look at their audiogram and see for the first time that they have a 40 dB notch at 6K or 4K and never realized it and then feel like they should start compensating for what they don't hear by bumping that up thinking that they're not there. I tell people do not do that. Uh, could you bring me my power cable in the other room? I'm yeah. about run out. Thank you. So um, that's the problem. Uh, if it gets really bad, obviously you're going to start noticing and your customers are going to start noticing. I had a, a gentleman that's a recording engineer here locally who had realized that anything past 8K, he wasn't really hearing as well as he used to. Those super highs go first. And they he noticed and he said, now I can't mix anymore because I, he's had almost 70% loss up at the highs. But he has a son that he trained. I go, how's your son's hearing? He brought him in perfect hearing. Gorgeous. Great. Well, why don't you have him listen to your recordings and bump up where he thinks it needs to be? Well, it turned out there was a regular amount, almost exact at each bandwidth that he knew. So then he could start mixing again and have some confidence that if he bumped it up 3 dB or 6 dB, it would sound good to everybody. The problem is, you know, your brain is what you're used to hearing. So these sound engineers, a lot of it evolved. And some of the people I work with that do front of house on big, huge tours or do uh, monitors for giant bands, they have some hearing loss. And I sometimes look at the hearing and go, I can't believe that mix sounds so good. But, you know, we've talked about on this podcast, on this uh, broadcast, 
uh, about equal loudness contours, right? So when we test hearing, that's the softest level you can hear the sound. As sound increases, right, that, that curve starts flattening out from a Fletcher-Munson curve to just a flat curve by the time you're up at 100 dB. So injured nerve cells tend to fire faster and get louder quicker than non-injured once stimulated. So if you have a 60 dB loss at 4K, it takes 60 decibels before that nerve just fires. And when I go to 70, it's firing 10 times faster than a normal one. So Mm -hmm. 70 sounds a lot louder than 70 to somebody else. And by the time you're at 100, it hurts. Right. So... I would say do not use an audiogram to look at how you mix sound and use your hearing and your brain, which has gotten to you where you are today, and try to keep what you have. You go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I've found as a sound mixer for many years that um, listening monorally, in other words, the same uh, audio signal going into over-the-ear headphones uh, into both ears at the same time, analog, no delays, uh, gave me more uh, acute hearing, or are you you hear a lot of noises that your brain psychologically uh, tunes out because of directionality. Um, Do you ever take into account the neurological difference in hearing? In other words, our brain can tune out certain frequencies if we're exposed to them for a long period of time. Uh, Is that a factor in creating hearing aids? And is there any way to control that? Uh, That I can't speak to the hearing aid issue, but I can talk about neurological uh, uh, issues or neurological really benefits to being a musician or even a sound engineer. But we found musicians for sure have greater processing capabilities than non-musicians. And I have a friend, a close colleague, Nina Krause, who's at Northwestern. She has a, she's a neuroscientist and she studies the auditory brain. Not many people just study auditory brain, but I love that she does. And she was running a speech in noise test, right? So we put a bunch of people with the same hearing loss profile into a, into a booth. And we say, we're going to put a bunch of noise and let's see how well you do in noise, which everybody seems to do worse than with hearing loss figure. And she had four people that knocked out home runs. They almost got 100% compared to everybody else. They were all in a symphony. And then she realized this is a brain activity. They're trying to hear their violin. They're trying to turn this guy down. They're trying to turn the percussion and horns down. They're trying to pick up a piccolo in front and they do it all day. So when they get into the restaurant and there's a bunch of babble in the background, they can locate that voice and pick it out and understand it much better than people with the same hearing. So the neurological benefit of being a musician and also bilingual is another one that really puts your brain at a different processing capability in a plus point. Of course, when you lose hearing, that starts going away. Good morning. A little bit. You're, you're muted, Marty. Sorry. Now that that's really interesting. It, it explains a lot about my own hearing and, and what I'm experiencing and um, I've often thought about uh, using, you know, based on what I know from a hearing test from the audiogram, maybe um, applying an EQ, an opposite EQ curve in my headphone monitor, um, just to even things out. Is that something that you would recommend? No, 
Again, I just talked about that. I think that adding the actual amount that you're, you have a deficit from your threshold, right? We define a hearing test threshold as the softest sound, softest level you can hear a frequency at least half the time, the softest. So, I mean, some of them people get down to zero dBHL, which is, you know, very, very small, and they can hear that, that, that slightly. But as things get louder, things change, and a hearing loss changes it again because of something called abnormal loudness growth to injured hair cells. So the same thing that caused your hearing loss is going to cause possibly those frequencies to be amplified in your head louder than they actually are when they get loud. Hmm. So, so reversing so, any curve, I, I think that's kind of when they have these algorithms for earphones. I know there's a couple of companies out there that you dial in your hearing loss and they create a profile that matches that. They're taking into account that whole idea that we can't hearing aids the same way. We can't blast people what they want. Uh, if I take somebody with perfect hearing and I ask them zero dB thresholds and I ask them what's comfortably loud, they'll say about 50 dB, and then I'll say what's uncomfortable, they get up to about 100, okay? So there's threshold, comfort, uncomfort. Now I got somebody with a 50 dB hearing loss. I ask him what's comfortable, 75. Ask him what's uncomfortable, 85. So you understand this abnormal loudness growth with an injured nerve cell. So when you're trying to mix sound based on just an audiogram and trying to compensate based on numbers it's not going to probably work very well hmm. next question next question comes to us from jeff cohen in miami beach florida assuming custom-made in-ear monitors have a perfect fit in the inner ear portion how important is the outermost portion i've seen many top musicians with obvious gaps in the outer or visible part of their in-ear monitors you want to explain that jeff a little that's bit? a great yeah, and I'm trying to, um, uh, I don't know why it's not letting me share this. I was going to share a, a picture um, to, to better explain that. Let me give it one more whirl. But, I, but I've noticed, it, you know, it's musicians and bands like Metallica, for example, that obviously have the, the money, here we go, to, you know, certainly have the best customs made. So here, if you can see this, I mean, here's Lars, um, and, and I just kind of put these together to make it easy. On, on this one, you can see on our left, there's a pretty big gap. So uh, again, I'm assuming he had a custom impression made, the part that's going into his ear, let's assume that's a perfect fit. But here you see a gap on this outer part, and then one more, <clears throat> um, Again, he's kind of, you know, it's definitely protruding. And then when you look closer, now that gap is was on our right, the front part. So it's clearly moving around. This, by the way, the, these two screenshots are a couple seconds apart. So, you know, first the, when he was turning one way, the gap was on our left. Now it's on our right. So... So this is what I'm curious about. And I've seen others because I pay attention and I've been looking where it seems to, that outer part seems to be a perfect fit. Um, this doesn't. And again, I'm assuming that the inner part is perfectly sealed. I'm just curious if that outer fit makes a difference. That's a great question and so many different answers coming out of this. So let me, let me get down to the nitty gritty of custom, all right? So when you take a custom ear impression, not everybody's qualified. And some people take a bad impression. And when you're making the product, you make it according to the impression. You can't add on. 
you can't take, you can take away. Uh, but let's get to another factor. One is they don't, you're making the assumption they fit good down in the ear canal. No. Bad assumption. In fact, that's the biggest problem. Most of them fit the whole bulk of the ear, like mine here. But if I show you, the length of it is deep. I don't know if you can see that. But I mean, I get in there all the way past the second bend of your drum. So I'm millimeters from my eardrum. And by doing that, I get about 34 dB of reduction. If I do just the bulk of my ear and I fill it in completely, not like Lars, it's really all filled in and I don't put much of a canal on it, I get 10 reduction, 10. There's no ear hole up here. This isn't an ear hole, right? It just putting more bulk on the top isn't changing anything. It's more of a retention and stuff to put more speakers in, right? So how do you get plastic to feel good in a moving ear canal with very sensitive skin? As you get deep, you'll notice that with a Q-tip or if somebody takes an ear impression, it gets a little sensitive in there, right? So now you've got an earphone that's plastic and your ear canal is doing this and it's going ow, 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 ow. So the people that make plastic, which is most of the companies, whittle it down so it's comfortable but by whittling it down they're allowing more frequencies to come in especially at the low there's two companies that have zero db reduction below 500 hertz so what does that mean with the upper spread of masking from lows these people are cranking up those ear monitors and they think they're being protected is the problem you have to there's two bends to your ear canal if you can get past the second bend that's where the magic happens. But you have to use silicone, which I do because I'm an audiologist. I'm the only doctor making earpieces. Everybody else, it's it's Logitech and all these companies, right, that don't know an ear from, from anything. But we'll do these ear monitors and people can now with plastic printers and all the, you know, the digital printing stuff can make an ear shell now. It's just take a scan of it and say print and... And so it's get easier to do that stuff, but nobody understands. The unfortunate part is the musicians are under the, the impression that I've got a safe ear monitor in my ear. And everybody sells them that way without any kind of documentation or proof. And if I could ask, when taking the impression then, I've seen completely conflicting recommendations when taking an impression. <laughs> Some say just, uh, you know, they, you know, bite down on something and stay perfectly still while the impression sets. And I've seen uh, another set of recommendations that say just the opposite. Chew, talk. If you're a drummer, make all the expressions right. that yeah. you're going to do while the impression is setting. Correct. That's the better way. The second, the latter one. Let me say this. The bite block, we call it, where you stationarily put this piece of plastic in your mouth while somebody shoots your ear. What it does in 60% of ears is create a little bit bigger space. All right. And 40% it didn't. But it was that was it. They made their whole decision based on this bite block study. So uh, nobody sits there on stage performing with their mouth wide open or shut. So not moving your face, you know, we want that face to move. I want you to replicate all your face movements because when you start singing and making the screaming crazy Steven Tyler face, I want that thing to move with you. So it's not something you notice. 
The idea, again, I keep saying, is to design products that are not obtrusive at all. It sounds really great. That goes for comfort, too. You want to forget. You want to play. You're not thinking about your hearing. You're not thinking about whether it hurts. You're not thinking about how loud you are. You just know it sounds good. If we can keep the levels down and all those things don't bother you, you're just performing. But yeah, the moving mouth and jaw, we've done our studies here. Obviously, I own a lab and I don't care which one's the right one, but remakes I have to do for free. And uh, we are less than 2% on remakes for all products. Doing it that way in the industry is about 32%. So I don't, I challenge the open mouth. And it's a friend of mine that did this study on 60 people. 60. They were basing all this stuff on 60 people, but it started with Westone Ultimators and everybody copied them. So they also do the same thing. Got to do the bike block. Nobody knows why, but that's the right way. And I let them do what they do. <laughs> well, and I know I've, I've had uh, three different molds and I've never got one that I'm willing to use regularly. So I might have to talk to you later. So, so anyway, so we'll, uh, yeah, okay. but I haven't, I, I still, I'm still like, oh, it's too uncomfortable. And I just take them out and I put the old cheap ones in. <laughs> next, next, next question. Next question comes to us from Marty Adius in Maryland. Uh, is hearing loss more or less common among people with particular physical traits such as hair color or eye color? Oh, oh. There's, really, there's really no nothing that shows hair color, eye color as being more susceptible to hearing loss. Next question. Good question. Andy Kokendorfer from Vieira. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Uh, Andy Kokendorfer from Vieira, Florida, has our next question. What do you recommend to reduce Zoom and/or cognitive fatigue when listening to meetings over the course of a long workday? Thanks. Wow. Yeah. Well, that's mental fatigue, not ear fatigue, right? I mean, here's the thing in the music industry: I always hear is ear fatigue, and I wonder. We have something called temporary threshold shift. If you overuse your ear too loud, you walk off the set and you go, wow, my hearing's down. I don't hear as good as I did. That's an actual shift in your hearing called an injury, right? That's not fatigue. That's injury. Fatigue is mental. Uh, I'd say don't do as many Zoom sessions. <laughs> I think meditate between Zoom sessions, but I, it's not an ear issue unless you're cranking up the level and i can't imagine you're doing that on zoom calls so so as far as that goes i i just think you know do less zoom calls or try to get a nice relaxation set again maybe some biofeedback or or yeah. uh, what i do we meditate. have we have a pretty strong opinion here if you notice a lot of us have radio mics is because we have a very strong opinion that that the uh zoom fatigue is directly related to bad audio you know so so when the audio has any echo when the audio has any breakup it increases cognitive load which uh, creates the the cognitive load of, from the, from you trying to Absolutely. decipher what you're listening to. I do agree with that. I didn't think of that. Thank you for bringing that up. But yeah, absolutely. That could be fatiguing, surely. And distortions are fatiguing and other things, right? I get yeah. it. Yeah. So cleaner for audio is the yeah, answer. Clean, clean audio. <laughs> Next question. Next one's mine, actually, from here in San Diego. And I know you kind of mentioned this before. It may not be in, this may not be in your wheelhouse, but it, I asked, what's up with the hearing aids industry? Apparently, it's poised for a bit of an upheaval after decades of increasing sophistication, but also increasing costs. How do you see the industry evolving? Um, boy, that's a, you know, it's been a really interesting travel because I've been around the hearing aid industry for almost, I've been an audiologist for almost 40 years. So I used to work for a hearing aid company way back 38 years ago. Uh, 
it's really come a long way as far as the technology, to be honest with you. The major, there's six majors now. There used to be 82 companies not that long ago, and they're now all just sucked up into six companies, one American uh, and mainly all European. But uh, they all have great technology that helps you hear in noise. They help you. I mean, they talk to each other now. They have automatic changes from my uh, hypercardioid to a directional mic and noise canceling behind you for restaurants. And you have an app on your phone. You can get phone calls through them. And it, it's they have feedback reduction. So the biggest advancement has been able to put an open ear with a speaker it and not have feedback so now you're using your natural hearing and just adding on the things that you're missing through the hearing aid so they've come a long way uh for music they suck there's there's no they all try to claim something but they they really only go out to about 8k 6k they don't have much fidelity there they clip at about 105 db they're full of all this dsp to make those wonderful things happen but it really screws up a live performance so they don't really work too well for that now the upheaval came when now we have over-the-counter hearing aids right uh there are strict rules for development and claims on those things so we've already had a couple companies that were the early uh leaders in this thing go out of business already so i'm we'll see how this model works right i mean bose has had this earphone for a long time it, it's probably the best selling and i don't think they're making millions on it uh, but what i do like about the over-the-counter is it gets more people into hearing aids because we've only touched 20 percent of the of the people that need them and we have for 50 years only touched 20. We can't grow it even with better technology. So I think costs going down with the over-the-counter and availability, go buy it at Walgreens or whatever. I mean, that's going to help people get into them. When you get into more severe hearing loss and complications, you're going to go see an audiologist and we'll get our time with people. Go ahead, Chris, but it's dad. not always the device, it's the programming on it. And I think right. that's something people should realize. Right. Can you go, Chris? Yeah, Michael, this is fascinating. I want to drive to Chicago and have you uh, mold my ears. Maybe Alex wants to ride with me. Um, Come on, a road trip. We're all just going to descend on you. They'll be like, we'll be, coming, of us. we'll be coming from California. I don't like to. Fly. We do that with whole bands. We have a busload of bands coming here. Come on in on a bus. So, um, what I was going to say is, uh, considering the over the counter, it, is it true? I heard that there has been um, fighting or legislation or whatever it is about redefining what a hearing aid is so that they can call it a hearing aid, get insurance to pay for it, and still sell it over the counter. Is that true? Do you know anything about that? Uh, I don't. I really don't because I don't do hearing aids, man. I ran away from that one a long time ago. <laughs> right. Okay. I'm in the prevention, not in the, yeah. in the rehab. Right. Right. But uh, I, I would think that they are not going to bastardize things so that people can get them cheaper. I think there's pretty, I've heard that pretty strict regulations as far as what they have to do to call themselves a hero. And, and I think that's the issue uh, is they're trying to change those regulations because the consumer electronics companies, if you will, Bose, et cetera, et cetera, they want, they want to push into the market because they see it as a potential, you know, money maker, but it's those regulations where they can't actually call it a hearing aid or something like that. I could be wrong. Yeah. Well, and I think it's, and I think you guys, I think it's really, really dumb to call it a hearing aid. Here's the problem with hearing aids. And I really believe this. 
it's it's the language language behind it. Here, look at these terms: hearing loss, hearing impairment, hearing aid, hearing test. What do you hear? Aid, test, loss, and impairment. Who's attracted to those words? I would yeah. never. Call it a hearing. I would never call it a hearing aid. I call it. I'd call it a personal sound amplifier. Yeah. And I don't call it hearing loss. I go. Oh, you have these sounds here are below what the normal average is. Oh, what do I do about it? I can get a little mic and amplifier and make them up louder like the other ones and correct it. Oh, rather than saying you have loss and you need an aid because you're impaired. Right. I don't know. I think there's a language problem. I have friends that are. I have I have friends in that 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 are in their 80s that will not put a hearing aid in. You know because that you know because they don't want to feel exactly what you're talking about. Whereas a personal monitor, environment monitor, (laughs) or something like that would be right. Uh, Exactly. Exactly. Right. That's true. But here's one thing about about untreated hearing loss. Loss. So hearing aids are good. Uh, Anybody can go on any search engine and look up hearing loss and early dementia and there's such a high it's the number one correlative uh uh, problem that people have that Hmm. is the biggest risk of causing early dementia and why because i mentioned the brain is always getting sound when you sleep and everything quits getting sound it's not stimulated anymore and you watch people withdraw from a conversation because it's too hard to pay attention it's exhausting right. so they back off and as they isolate that's one of the big causes so we don't know if the hearing a hearing loss causes the dementia or if the isolation caused by hearing loss right. but it's the number one correlative uh, factor for early cognitive decline mm-hmm. so uh, getting getting help if you have hearing loss is a really good idea if you want to keep your brain healthy. Yeah, go ahead, Jeff. You're going to add something. Yeah, uh, and I'm fascinated by the convergence. Just just for anyone that's not familiar, what the doctor was talking about is, and is fairly recent, just November of last year, the FDA formalized this and said that yes, now devices that are hearing aids can be sold over the counter Mm -hmm. without having to go to Mm -hmm. an audiologist. What's fascinating to me, and and for those that follow Leo Laporte has been mentioning this for a few years now, which really got me fascinated at the convergence between hearing aids that are getting smarter features like being able to pair and act as Bluetooth headphones. And then the other direction, the Bluetooth earbuds and headphones are getting smarter and smarter. Apple and others are putting more features in there. Some have the ability, they claim at least, to be able to, with a app on your phone, to be able to somehow map the ear canal. Um, so to me, that's fascinating. I, I have a, uh, you know, I know someone that has a teenage daughter that should be wearing hearing aids, but, but doctor, like you mentioned, just the the stigma yeah. around that she she doesn't wear them and and I think that convergence is really fascinating when they look cool when they're yeah. called you know earbuds or whatever headphones right. and have more of that functionality that's when it's really going to get that adoption yeah. yeah you don't feel so singled out right yeah I agree next question Jeffrey Powers Madison Wisconsin what are your thoughts on one tongue stimulation techniques and two CBD gummies from the MIT group claiming that they stop tinnitus have you heard any of this uh yes I've I've heard of both uh not for everybody just going to say <laughs> anything you hear about a first off there's no cure for tinnitus so get the cure out of it Right. There's treatments for tinnitus, right? And the treatments work 
for certain groups of people. And I don't know if they've even identified them all the time. But if your problem is loud sound, you're not sitting there taking a, a tongue stimulation and suddenly because it was loud sound, it's going away. It's hard to say what, what they're doing, but that does work for people. And I've, I've heard it does. Uh, I've never used that before. It's strictly for tinnitus, right? That's not for hearing loss. It's not doing anything for hearing. It's reducing tinnitus. So you can use that stimu that tongue stimulator to reduce tinnitus. And on some people, it works. The gummies and CBD, again, some people it works. But one of the things that works as well is, again, mindfulness, meditation. So maybe the gummies help people relax, relax a little bit more and the decrease in tinnitus as a result. Uh, it's hard to say, but yeah, nothing wrong with trying anything. Uh, there is a vitamin that was came out of University of Michigan. The researcher that found out the reason our hair cells get injured is that oxidation occurs at the cellular level. So he looked at antioxidants for 25 years uh, for ears and found a vitamin that was supposed to protect and on lab animals, double blind study protected 50% of them from hearing loss, uh, really reduced the, the amount of loss. Uh, we haven't been able to run them on humans. So they gave them to me to hand out to front of house engineers for these big doors because they're getting bashed every show and they're not wearing earplugs most of the time. And so they started taking the vitamin to protect their hearing. And about half of them called me and said, my tinnitus is gone. Hmm. So we don't know. That's a right. vitamin ACE and magnesium thing called sound bites. And it's still owned by the university. Uh, so there's a number of treatments that could work. Uh, but not everything for anybody. And if you're desperate to get something, the thing about tinnitus, and let me say one more thing to all the listeners, it is not a disease. It's a symptom. It's a runny nose. Doesn't make your hearing go away. You're not going to die from it. Your ears won't fall off your head. It's an annoying, annoying thing. And I'm not trying to say that it's not devastating, but if you think of it as not dangerous, but just this runny nose that you wish you could go away, I think there's a lot of the concentration on it and makes it worse and people have a harder time getting away from it when they focus on it. Oh no, I'd be pretty upset if I had a running nose 24 <laughs> seven. Yeah, well, question. I get it. <laughs> <laughs> next question. Marty Adius back again with how important is it to have properly fitting in-ear monitors and earbuds? Right. Well, we, right. Well, we talked about that we and we were showing Larry Zalrick not fitting. Yeah. But, but it is important. Uh, the problem is the end user doesn't really know. They're musicians. They don't know what good fitting is or isn't unless they've had a good fitting one before, right? They'll, they'll say this one doesn't fit as tight. Okay, fine. And they might even get used to it not knowing what the problem is. I've come up with another device that's soon to be launched. I'm in the little component jam like everybody else for some microprocessors that Ford and Apple want to use. But as soon as it's ready, I have something. All the, the hardware is here. We're just waiting for one more component. Uh, and it's called DB Check Pro, and it has pretty much uh, 200 earphone brands and, and types for in-ear monitors and studio. And you dial in your earphone, you plug into this passive device, and it'll tell you how loud you're listening to that level mm -hmm. in DBA. And then it'll convert that to how many minutes you're allowed in both OSHA and NIOSH. So you have a speedometer oh, to make decisions. If they're loose fitting, you're going to turn them up and you're not going to be able to turn them down because as soon as you do, you say, I can't hear anything anymore because they're bleeding too much. And then they'll go out and get a tighter fit. So I'm hoping this helps some people really change that. That's great. Uh, next question. Dave Troutman, Edmonton, Canada. Up next, how serious is the accumulation of earwax to the health of my ears? 
Well, earwax is a very wonderful thing. It's your friend. I know it seems gross, but the, you've got the, your ear canals are the only holes in your body that are skin lined. Your nose and mouth are mucous membrane lined, but your ear canals are your face extending up to your eardrum inside your head, right? And so now you don't have the protection of mucous membrane that the other cavities have. And so you have fungus, bacteria that love to grow in a dark, warm, moist cavity like an ear canal. And what prevents is, is this amber oil secreted called cerumen, or we know it as earwax, and it's antifungal and antibacterial. Swimmer's ear, they swim so much, there's no wax to prevent any bacteria from getting in. So you need to have it for that purpose. The other thing it does is it turns, it's an amber oil that turns brown when you see it usually, because it's collected dust and dirt and keeping it off your mic diaphragm called your eardrum. So that's an important aspect of it. It mitigates dead skin cells out of your ear because they're not coming off in the shower and it's odor repels bugs from moving in and making a home in there. So you're supposed to have a certain amount of earwax. Easiest way to get it out, don't use Q-tips. Your ear canal is only two and a half centimeters from your eardrum, the opening. And so you can easily punch a hole in your eardrum. There's drops you can buy over the counter that soften the wax and little flushing devices to flush it out. It doesn't do anything to harm you. And once it comes out, your hearing is back to normal. So earwax is not problematic. It's your friend. Next question. Yeah, I think you just addressed this. John Snyder said, are Q-tips really that bad for your ears and why? Yeah, because the same thing. First off, they don't have a hook on them, right? So if you're pushing, you know, the ear canals, the wax is growing on the canal. And when you push that in, many times you're just packing it down deeper. And so most people that have ear canal, ear wax impactions in their ear canal, they literally have been packing it in with a Q-tip. <laughs> and your ear, your eardrum is as strong. It's really strong for sound, by the way. It takes up to 180 dB to break an eardrum. So shows aren't ever going to get that. It doesn't really break very often. But touching it doesn't take much to break it. It's got the strength of a piece of wax paper pulled tight. So right. get a Q-tip and poke on that and see how long it would take you to break your eardrum. And then you've got an issue with hearing. That's Next why you don't use Q-tips. Next question. Jeff Cohen, Miami Beach, Florida. A friend has recently gone through chemotherapy and now has a slight ringing in her ears. She was told it's common and won't go away. Is there any treatment now or on the horizon? Might a future stem cell therapy help? The future always holds hope. So I, I don't know about stem cells for that, but uh, chemo is is tough it, it's it's it really does cause some ringing and sometimes some hearing loss in frequencies above 10k seem to get injured very quickly it may go away that's not true that it may never go away but there is no direct treatment for uh toxic and base uh toxic based hearing lo hearing loss and tinnitus unfortunately not specific to that, but all these other treatments that other people try, surely worth a try, because sometimes it works. Next question. Juan C. Robles in Mexico City. How effective are over-the-ear protections versus in-ear? Mm. That's a really interesting question. 
I think that you can get very good protection from, you know, the military muffs that they're wearing on these decks of the aircraft carrier, like I mentioned, or something. Those those typically have the highest rating, a custom molded piece that's full shell in your ear and goes all the way to the eardrum can give you close to that. And putting both on is the maximum you can get. The one thing I don't like to hear from people is saying that use the muffs instead of the plugs, because especially when you're talking about ear monitors or any amplified piece, because the sound's closer to your eardrum, we're talking two and a half centimeters. You're not even a dB louder. So the ability to block sound on the inside of your ear will keep you from turning up. But if you have a little flat earbud out here that isn't really blocking anything, then you're going to crank things up over what's coming in in the environment. So there is a difference there. Next question. John Borager, it looks like, uh, says, can you talk about the Autofirm lubricant? And this is the first time I've seen this cream. He's got the link there. Whoops, I think you're muted uh, again. Uh, you know, with our ear monitors, yeah, I think my, my somehow my internet connection went unstable. Uh, the, the ear monitors sometimes, especially our silicone ones, are a little bit difficult to get in. That's really a tight, tight fit. And so all it is is a lubricant that doesn't hurt the lacquer or the silicone at all. And so it's an approved lubricant to slide it in your ear easier. Next question. And we, and we recommend it if you have trouble getting them in. Ranjan Chandil in Los Angeles. AirPods Pro, okay to use? How long and for how loud? Well, if you have AirPods Pro, then you should have an Apple phone. If you have an Apple phone, you should have the health app. And on the health app, there is an actual warning that will tell you when your AirPod Pros are too loud. And it will tell you, turn it down, you've reached your daily dose of 100%. I worked with Apple on this for four years with the World Health Organization. They were the first ones to jump in and do something about it. Uh, you'll also they'll also tell you when the room's too loud on that. So just go into your health app, open up the hearing section and activate the warning for when your earbuds are too loud. It's a perfect thing for that. I've definitely been in environments where I get this little pop up that says, hey, you're, this is too loud. <laughs> like you can't you got to You got to go. You got to go somewhere else. It's really interesting. Uh, next next question. Dave Troutman, Edmonton, what, Canada. What Which, I like about it, though, what I like about that. Yeah, that's okay. What I like about that is that it, it brings it into people's heads, right? I think that people don't think about their hearing until they lose it. Mm -hmm. It's like breathing. It's really yeah. important, but you don't think about it until it's not there. And so this gets people to think about it all the time. And I think that's going to help people start being aware and more appreciative of it. Yeah, absolutely. Makes uh, next question. Dave Troutman, Edmonton, Canada, uh, Can Canada. What's your opinion of bone conducting earphones? I think they have their uses. People really like them that uh, want to hear outside their head when they're running or something. So uh, I think all the sound coming through bone conduction isn't really what is that enjoyable. There's a real limited bandwidth on bone conduction. Uh, anything past 6K on the high is really not going to get transferred very accurately. Things below maybe 200 hertz aren't going to get transferred very well either uh, through the oscillators. And so they add little speakers to send sound into your from the outside along with the bone conductor. And, uh, you know, they're okay. Next question. Not, for, not for a loud show, though. 
Right. <laughs> they Cannon. tickle. They tickle <laughs> when they get up there. Yeah, next, next question. Jack Cannon from Phoenix, Arizona. Are there any negative impacts of using a hearing aid? A speaker that close to the ear, could it cause problems? Well, there's limiters built into it, right? So really there is, you have, if you're an audiologist, that's really good. You sit down with your computer and you program this and it goes for the whole, you know, EQ curve. They have a graphic EQ. They can build the frequency response for anything and they can also set the output levels and compression. And so literally there's nobody that wants to tolerate very loud sounds, the, again, Distance to your ear is not the issue. It's just making sure they're not going up too loud, and that's controlled with the electronics inside the hearing aid. Next question. Marty Adias again. How accurate can hearing aids be, and are any good enough for audio work? Uh, no. <laughs> Let me just say no. Okay? So, so once you're in the hearing really, aids world, you're, you're, it's, it's time to not hang up the... Well, no, there's other things out there, you know, that aren't hearing aids. So remember, there's when you're in the audio world, you've got the access of headphones, in-ear monitors, all these other tools right. where others in the hearing aid world are walking around at a restaurant. They don't have those options. So yeah. it's a different game for audio professionals. Uh, but, you know, it doesn't really work that well. People that use the music program in their hearing aids will tell me they really like them, but none of them are musicians. Or audio professionals right. so yeah it sounds better than the hearing aid without the music program does it sound hi-fi is it enough for somebody to do their job efficiently probably not next question douglas carmichael many european countries have legally enforced spl sound pressure limits uh for venues and live events do you think we'll ever see a national enforced standard for entertainment sound pressure levels in north america I don't think it'll be nationally enforced, but I do think there is a movement going on. I know there is, because with the World Health Organization, which I'm still working with, we first came after manufacturers of smartphones, now we're after venues. And in fact, I just had a meeting with Live Nation about stuff. So everybody's looking into it. We have recommendations for levels, recommendations for levels at front of house. We're trying to train engineers to listen to things better so they're not so, don't know what the safe levels are. Right. So we can say, how loud is it at front of house? And they had over, I think it was 30 sound companies. And they were saying, oh, 100 to 105 is where we are in most shows. And we always say, if you knock it down 3 dB, the entire crowd could be in it twice as long without injury. Could you knock it down three? Yeah. Would they notice it? Probably not. Right. Then they World Health did a survey around. Concert goers, they asked 25,000 concert goers, and they, there was a criteria you had to go to a bunch of concerts. Are concerts too loud, not loud enough, just right? 8%, not loud enough. 72%, too loud. 72%, almost three quarters of people think shows are too loud. So keeping the levels down is important. In Europe, they enforce it, or at least they say they enforce it. Some, like Switzerland has actually shut off power to clubs or shows that go over the limit and the guy's monitoring it from a remote space. The other places like sometimes in the UK I've read and, and other areas where I've worked with these people, they find the engineer in the band. Well, bands just put it in their 
they bring the ticket price up a dollar and they play as loud as they want. So the regulation doesn't always stop people. And that regulation of 100 dB by the European definition of safety is only safe for 15 minutes and they're allowing that. So uh, I think that the regulation is something that people are used to in Europe. Uh, uh, there's lots of regulations there here in the US and other parts of the world. I'm not sure they'll fly as easily, but Definitely, I'm all for the movement of educating the public and making sure they take action. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting because it, I think it also... And I do agree that in public health, mandating it by law is the best way. You know, and I, I think that's interesting. You know, as uh, I've watched, started watching some live shows in theaters. And what's nice about them, one of the things I like about them is, is that it's a known amount of volume. <laughs> like, you know, like the, the, the live event comes to me and it's, uh, I don't have to stand up as much. <laughs> it may not be good there for us, go. <laughs> but, but I can sit and watch something and I know that it's not going to, I'm not going to leave ringing, you know, and, and that's yeah. a, it's a really uh, interesting part. So of the there's, problem. there's been, there's been talk about putting mics around a stage in a stadium or, or concert hall mm -hmm. and showing people, you know, it's time to put in earplugs. And of course, everybody in world health are all, they're all ministers of health and, and right. all that. And they're like, yes, we have to stop them. We'll put microphones. I go, where are you putting them? They go, what do you mean? I go, do you ever hear of a line array? We put them in front. I go, well, a line array, that's not going to be very loud. And what about a small room that's real narrow with a low ceiling or what? All these different acoustic yeah. environments. Where are you going to get the best measurement for the entire crowd? So that's the issue. Yeah. Right. That's the issue. So they, yeah. they're trying to leave it to the front house engineer to kind of keep an overall level down and educate people that wear hearing protection when they think it's too loud or maybe even notifying them it's too loud. That's the one up in the air right now. Do we put a red light on when it's too loud and then everybody cheers to make sure they get the red light? <laughs> exactly. Michael, it has been such a fascinating hour. We're so glad that you came and joined us. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much. Thanks, you guys. Really, really interesting. Uh, now I feel Thanks. like I have to go to Chicago and get my ears. I get, finally Come, get one that I'll wear. Anybody's welcome to come up and see us. All right. All right. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah, thank you. Bye-bye. Uh, thank you. Bye-bye. And thanks to our uh, to our producers out there for all the great questions that kept us all going. Thanks to the panelists. Can't do this without you. And uh, it was really, really great. Great conversation, first hour and second hour. And thanks, of course, to the incredible team that uh, puts their time in, both the development team, the live team, the planning teams, all the teams that make this show possible. We want to thank everybody for their hard work. Uh, we kept, we traveled uh, 50,000 miles today uh, through all those questions, 81,000 kilometers, 461 bananas for scale. Um, and uh, so we're now going to jump into after hours. That's enough potassium to cause hearing loss. Yeah, I know. See, this whispering is good for our hearing. This, you're definitely not a rock musician. Someone asked, someone asked me, uh, what would you tell your 18-year-old self? And I told my 18, I would tell my eight year, 18 year old self, hey, you're about to go to a thousand shows in the next three years. You should wear hearing protection. <laughs> the drugs will be fine, say, but your ears will not say. recover. Turn the stereo up so I couldn't hear them telling me that.